joining us on geezers of gear episode 23 today's episode is brought to you by prg prg is the world's leading provider of services and solutions in entertainment and events they bring industry-leading creativity experience and technology to every event prg's teams consist of the most accomplished experts engineers and craftspeople working in theater film tv broadcast concert touring corporate events, hotels, and staging. With 170 patents and more than 70 trademarks, PRG are a company defined by innovation. And through their network of 70 offices spanning five continents, they are capable of delivering for customers anywhere on the globe. Good day, Mr. Konas. Good day, Mr. Marcel. So... Today we have a pretty cool day. We have uh, sort of a double whammy on the guest thing. We have Chris Conti from PRG coming up first, and then, of course, Howard Ungerleiter, who is a very good friend of mine, and I believe a friend of yours as well, Henry. That's correct. He and is. Uh, very talented lighting designer, great businessman. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've known him a long time, but I actually had to go digging, looking for some things to talk to him about because, you know, sometimes when somebody's your friend and you have to do somewhat of an interview, you kind of jump on and go, uh, what should we talk about? Exactly. Because <laughs> so we're I, normally laughing and joking, right? Yeah. Over dinner or something well, like I that, think, right? I think we'll do a bit of laughing and joking too, because <laughs> Howard's a, Howard's a trip, but you know, just remembering and learning some of the things again that I knew about him at one point, but I had completely forgotten. And so that's going to be a pretty fun conversation. Um, I'll tell you, uh, one thing that's coming up, which I'm really looking forward to, is a gentleman named Pat Morrow, who's uh, one of the infamous legendary tour managers out there. And Pat worked with uh, Journey in their heyday and Michael Jackson and just loads and loads and loads of massive stars. And I've been doing some, uh, like he keeps wanting me to just hit record and record all of our phone calls because I've been talking to him over the last week. That's funny. And I mean, I really should have because some of the stories this guy has told me and I'm afraid he's going to forget by the time we get on the podcast. So that one's coming up, uh, not for a couple of weeks, but uh, that's going to be a super interesting podcast. I can't wait to do it. And um, so I wanted to just talk with you for a moment, Henry, about Infocom next week, because I know we've brought it up a few times, but I want to make sure people know, A, that we are there and we are recording uh, the podcast sort of, you know, I call it live, but it's quasi live, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's recorded live at the event, but it's recorded. So we are then going to be uploading them. So probably by the afternoon each day, we're going to have a couple of podcasts. We're, we're going to have a total of six podcasts next week. So for those of you who listen to us on the treadmill, you're going to have a pretty active week and uh, you're going to run about 100 miles next week, I guess keeping up with these podcasts, but I think they'll probably be a little shorter. They won't be our normal two hour variety. They'll be maybe an hour or 45 minutes or something. I um, think so. That's right. We have some pretty interesting, um, 
you know, I guess infamous guests coming on also just, yeah. uh, yeah, we've got some cool guys, some, some old friend of ours who have, uh, who have been through all kinds of different things in the industry. And, um, I, I don't want to bring them up. I guess we'll probably, uh, start to promote those people. Well, we could bring some of them up. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> we'll, I'll put it on Facebook or something, but there you go. Yeah. We've got some really cool guests, but also, uh, so Henry came up with this really cool idea. We had, uh, when we were looking for a logo for geezers of gear, one of the logos that came in from a designer just reminded both of us of a Budweiser bottle. And I don't know if it was because of the red font or because of just the style of the label and this banner thing that they put on it. It just reminded me of German beer or Budweiser or Oktoberfest or something. Sam and, Adams, right? Yes, Sam <laughs> Adams. Definitely. That's what it looked like. Definitely. So um, Henry says, why don't we go get some beer made for the show? And I know that that's taboo at most trade shows. You're not allowed to bring in your own beer you're supposed to buy it there and pay $12 a bottle or whatever it is. So we actually made some root beer. We had some root beer done, and uh, we're calling it Gear Beer. And we will have it available in our room where we're doing the recording for our own uh, enjoyment, but also for our guests and for anybody who just wants to stop by and grab a Gear Beer, which really is, you know, just tastes an awful lot like root beer. Let's call it that. We need to add Sharpies to the list so we can autograph the gear beers. There you go. Put it on their shelves at home. Well, because God knows everyone at Infocom is going to want your autograph and mine. So. Exactly. Um, in, our, in our minds, right? So there you go. Yeah. The other thing is we do actually have a limited number of T-shirts available next week. So we did just get start getting sponsorships. And, and so we couldn't afford thousands of T-shirts, but we definitely have some T-shirts available. And um, if you want to pop in and grab a t-shirt, just come on in and say hello. I will be putting the uh, booth location again up on um, on Facebook and on other areas of social media, but I'm looking for it right now on my computer, and there it is. It is Meeting Room 5, and it is located just off the food court, um, very near the escalators that go up to the show, I guess. But um, just behind the food court. So at the bottom of the escalator, there's a food court on each side. We're just past the one. If you're going down the escalator, I believe it's the one on your right. Um, so you'll turn to the right off the bottom of the escalator and go to meeting room number five. And if you look in the door or whatever, you'll be able to see a, a geezer's logo up on the oh. wall and Henry and I will be hanging around. So we won't be there all day because we will be at the show when we're not in there recording or having a meeting or something, but we'll be there, let's say till close to noon every day anyways. And, um, anything to add to that, Henry? No, just pretty excited by the variety of people we have coming on. So there's going to be, I know there's some tech geeks coming on. So yeah. one of the, one of the amplifier manufacturers is going to come over and talk a little bit about amplifier technology you know, okay. things like that. So it'll be our opportunity to kind of geek out a little bit on yeah. gear itself. And then, of course, we'll have the good stories mixed in in between, you know. Yeah. And I mean, if you're listening to this and you're going to be at Infocom and you've got something that you'd like to share with our audience and or, you know, you just walk around the first day and you go, oh, my God, I'm blown away by this new technology. I got to, you know, publicize that to someone and maybe you don't have enough Facebook followers of your own or whatever and you want to come talk to us. Just um, shoot us an email, geezers at gearsource.com, 
and we will get that email and we will reach out to you and we can just grab you right off the show floor and come in and record a 15, 20, 30, one hour segment, whatever. So, um, again, the idea is always to make sure that it's going to be something interesting to our audience. We don't want to bore people to death. I think we do a little bit of that on our own, but, um, so anyways, uh, Mr. Conti, who we have coming up, I don't know much about Chris Conti. I've heard so many amazing things about him and Henry, I think, you know, a little bit about his background. Yeah, he's got an interesting bio. I mean, comes out of Aerolite, obviously. And, um, you know, touring guy for a really, really long time, a uh, lot of road experience, mm-hmm. right? We'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast for sure. But, right. you know, all, also he did a uh, an informational series on PRG. He's got a number of, I guess, you know, technology things that he talks about, like he talks about fiber optic cable or why it's important to do something one way versus doing another. So he really integrates a lot of his road experience into uh, some of those videos. It was very interesting to kind of look through some of those. Right. And so now I guess he's the chief technology, technology officer. officer. That's yeah, correct. Yeah. At, at PRG, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, when I was doing lots and lots of business with PRG, I don't even remember them having a chief technology officer. So, you know, obviously a very cool title and lots and lots of responsibility because let's face it, this industry is driven by innovation and, uh, or it's chief innovation officer, I believe, is what it is. I think uh, that's. We'll ask him. We'll yeah, ask exactly. Him. Tell well, you what, he's a why technologist. Say that ten times. Why don't fast. we just yeah. go ahead and get Chris on, and he can uh, he can tell us himself. That's true. Episode twenty three coming up, right? Hey, Chris, thank you very much for joining us this morning. This is Chris Conti with PRG. Good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? Doing great, thank you. And so we were just talking about it on the on the little pre thing here. What is your actual title? Is it Chief Innovation Officer? Yeah, I am Chief Innovation Officer for Pure G V E R. And that's Perfect. that's an actually a new job um oh. for me and for uh, a new job in the company as well. Very cool. It you know, the thing is both of us obviously have been in this for a long time. Uh we both came in primarily through the moving light side. So we know how important innovation is to the industry because if you work for a moving light manufacturer and you're not innovating, you're dying very quickly. And um, so, you know, congrats to you. I mean, it's a, it's a cool role. It's a, obviously a, an awesome position that's very important to PRG's future. Oh, so, thanks so much. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, it's interesting because, you know, there's a, We've had a whole bunch of different uh, research and development groups across the company, uh, uh, not only working on different types of products, whether it be lighting or video or audio right. or rigging, um, but it's also geographically spread all around the globe at this point as well. Right. So we're trying to consolidate some of that and get a little more, um, you know, previously the groups were pretty siloed and didn't there wasn't a lot of cross-pollination or cross-talking. So yeah. Hopefully, we're gonna try to change that. And well, and knowing people and cooler stuff, people and processes in PRG as well as I do, um, I'm sure you're also dealing with a lot of different ideas from a lot of different personalities, and everybody thinks theirs is the next one that should happen. And so, probably some of it is just shuffling and filtering through the ideas yeah. to choose what to work on. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean. Politics, uh, it's, that's always a tough thing, you know, nego- uh, navigating all that. Uh, and, you know, 
and it, just innovation in itself, just coming up with new new things, it, yeah. it, it's tough. It's how, really tough. How does that process work? So do you start with the budget and then the idea, or do you start with the idea and then the budget and then the team? And how, how does that process go for you guys? Um, honestly, what I usually do, what I look for is pain points. Okay. Um, you know, and it's not, it can be pain points internally in the company, like we're having trouble with particular product that's in our inventory or we don't have enough of a particular thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, if we're it, having trouble if, moving it around. If it's not a problem, it's not really worth solving, right? <laughs> yeah, well, so. exactly. Um, you know, we look for gaps in the market, like, you know, all the main, I mean, obviously you have a, a lot of, uh, really great, uh, manufacturers out there that have a lot of great products and surprisingly uh as good as all these different manufacturers are there are still gaps in the market yeah so those are things that we look for but uh really the big thing is you know it's talking to our customers what 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 what's difficult what 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 is what on a production is making your life suck really badly yeah because uh, those are the things that i those uh, for me are the things that i look for and those are the things that have really resulted in some of our better products. Uh, well, you you might have if you've, if you've heard any of our uh, podcasts, we always ask the question: What hasn't been invented that you want invented? It kind of you know I, we phrase it differently yeah. or whatever. But we're trying to find out what are you missing, and everyone has a different idea of that. But a lot of them seem to float around things that will solve budgetary or trucking or size or weight issues right yeah Yeah, deployment and yeah i mean that's the infrastructure uh i mean money it all comes this is show business you know not show friends and uh (laughs) well you know it's uh it's down to money you know right you know you can have great you you can have a great crew you can have great equipment um but at the end of the day it's you know what's the budget what's you know what are the trucking costs going to be right you know how fast can we load in how fast can we load out yeah. So Chris, a question, yeah, I question actually, for you. speaking of trucking, sorry, Henry. So speaking of trucking, I actually on, I believe it was Instagram, um, upstagings, all the, I think it was Ariana's trucks lined up in Miami. Uh, I don't know if you saw that picture, but it was a pretty funny did, picture because yeah. they're like on the beach or right at the beach or whatever. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh my God, Ariana's a big show. I didn't realize how big it was until I saw how many trucks it was. So. Yeah, it's amazing, you know. I, you know, the thing I've always, all the years I've been doing this, I'm constantly amazed at how fast we can fill up a truck with stuff. No kidding. Huh? You know, I got a 53 foot truck, you know, that's a lot of space. And I'm yeah. like, oh my God, I'm next thing you know, I'm like at 10 trucks. Yeah. I'm just lighting gear or something. It's, it's insane. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's a, it's a big, it's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Henry, what were you sure. asking? Sorry. No, I was just, uh, Chris, I just wanted to kind of get a, an idea from you. So I know that, you know, obviously you do the ground control remote follow spot stuff and, you know, you manage the the bad boy and the best boy automated lights and some of the power distribution stuff, but also in some of your other articles, I, you know, that you, you know, other interviews, other articles, your informational videos that are very good, by the way, I enjoy those things Thanks. on the PRG website, you know, how much of a balance, like, so in your day-to-day, you know, uh, your work day, right? Yeah. How much of it revolves around inventing new product or proprietary product for PRG and how, how much of it, you know, revolves around solving a problem, right? Because I know that, I think in one of the articles I was reading about you, you were talking about, 
you know, the sets just keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more elaborate, and more automation. But I just can you enlighten the listeners a little bit about, you know, what your day looks like or what a mix of that that idea looks like? Yeah, 80% of my day is is problem solving. Yeah. Um, 20% is invention. Um, and, you know, some people would say, oh, you know, you should be inventing more. And, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm looking for the problems. So it's great that the bulk of my day is problem solving because that's leading uh, a lot of the problems that I run into on a lot of these productions are leading right to the products that we're developing internally. Yeah. yeah. It's actually a you brilliant know, a, way to do it because if you were just a bunch of engineers locked in a room without access to the outside world, you'd invent products, you'd solve problems that people don't have, you know? You, you, so the fact yeah. that you're in the line of fire and you're in a problem-solving role helps you to understand, you know, it's like people ask me some days, what do you do as a CEO? And most of what a CEO in a company does is solve problems. So the biggest yeah. problems in the company are thrown in the CEO's lap and he has to come up or she has to come up with creative solutions for those problems. And so I think it's, it's the right structure. Yeah, it's, it, and it, I mean, it's, it certainly informed us as to, you know, it's really guided us uh, on, on the things that we, we needed to work on uh, development wise. Um, it's, it, you know, and I'm constantly amazed just when you think you've seen it all. I'm like, oh my God, this is a new problem. I never even thought of, you know, right. uh, you know, thing. And, and some of the, just some of it's to sca do the scale of the shows that we're working on now. Some of it's due to the complexity of the equipment that's now involved. Yeah. You know, when I first started, I started at very light and in the nineties and, you know, we had like six lights. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. You know, very different. High end had a couple lights. Martin had, I mean, it was like, it was not, there wasn't a lot of stuff. It, and it was simple. Um, well, and it is, also really I'm, didn't need to fit together very well at that point. You know, like you didn't have to have a board that could share attributes on different fixtures. And, you know, it was all very different. Like you had a Verilite show, you had a Martin show, you had a high end show. Now you've got a show that's got, you know, virtually every manufacturer on it. And yep. they need to play nice. So it's definitely... And oftentimes they don't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. So yeah. specifically on ground control, because obviously, you know, it's a very, very important innovation for PRG. Um, I think it actually won some awards. It won an Emmy or something, as I recall. Um, That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So how did that thing come about? Was that... Was that uh, organic created in-house or was it something that someone brought to you and then you developed it? How did that work? Um, you know, so, you know, I toured and I toured for a long time before I, uh, I did this, uh, job. And the, for me personally, one of the first times I ever really thought about, like, there's gotta be a better way was in the early two thousands, I was out on Coldplay and, uh, I was dealing with, uh, I was responsible for uh, some system stuff. I was responsible for, uh, and follow spots. And I was hanging a bunch of trust spots. And it was such a pain in the ass every day. Yeah. You know, you know, getting the spots rigged and getting the guys to climb up there. And then, you know, constant, oh, the guy got stuck up there. He can't climb down or the spot wouldn't work. And it, it was just, it was painful. And so that's, that was the the beginning and the the first seed, you know, like there's got to be a better way. Yeah. 
um, really, it didn't really, the real first thought, like, you know, the whole remote concept, uh, you know, was uh, around, it was 2009, we were working on uh, the U2 360 tour with Willie Williams. And, you know, the, we had a bunch of trust mounted follow spots and it was just really complex. We had to fly these guys in and you know, fly the truss in. The truss wasn't an angle, so the spots had a special uh, pivot bracket on it. Plus, they were on rotating uh, seats. And, you know, we had to load the guys in and take the truss up. And then we had to pull all the cable up. Uh, and then if there was an emergency, we had to have all, uh, special descenders that, the, that they could bail out if they needed to. And it, w- it was such a production. I'm like... And, you know, and you had this beautiful set, I mean, that the, the claw and the lighting and, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, Stu Fish had designed a lot of that. And I mean, and then you had these big pods of fall spots and it just didn't, I mean, to me, I was just like, you have all this, there's gotta be a way to make this smaller. So we, I had actually, while out on production rehearsals in Barcelona, I had written up a, a specification, like, and it was really just taking an existing follow spot on the shelf and adding motors to it, and uh, and that's when we started looking at it, like, what was the feasibility, and there was some technology at that point, you know, the tech, like, the follow spots were there. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out how do we move the video around, you know, and at that time, obviously, you know, in the news, there's all these stories about drone strikes in Afghanistan and and things like that. And, you know, and that got us thinking a lot more like, well, you know, a drone, I should be able to do, I should be able to, you know, if we can drop a bomb in Afghanistan and someone's flying it from Colorado, I should be able to drive a follow spot from backstage, you know? Uh, that was the cat, you know, we did a lot of research into drone systems, looking at, you know, drone workstations there. So it was a, it was an evolution and ebb and flow a little bit. And then the, you know, uh, one, probably the, one of the biggest catalysts for it was drivers was Bob Barnhart, um, uh, designer out in LA. And he had brought to us a controller he wanted us to do a controller that we could control a, a bad boy fixture locally and turn it into a follow spot. And that's when the first, for us, the first realization, like, you know, we had always think we were always thinking like, Oh, we're going to have to take a Lycene like three K or a super trooper or something and, and modify it. It wasn't until we started using the bad boys as a, as a, as a, a locally controlled follow spot. Then we realized that the fixture had enough output uh, and it could be used as a follow spot. It was small. So that was our, you know, crawl, walk, run, so to speak. So with that, we were crawling. Yeah. So, so and, Chris, uh, yeah. question for you at this point. You know, uh, obviously the, the ground control system is the first commercially successful, for lack of a better term, you know, system that works in concert touring applications. You know, Wybrun a number of years ago, and don't ask me. Yeah, what. I had the autopilot. They autopilot, and then Martin also did a, uh, a similar thing where they actually had a, uh, a the ability to track similar to yours. And those things, you know, they came. I was and there then, and I don't even remember what that thing was called. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. We never got it <laughs> that, working really, that's how really successful well. It was well. I yeah, mean, so, it, interference and stuff was just so easy to make lights go crazy. So, yeah, you know, it, I mean, because all those systems, they're using an infrared system and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually remember looking at a uh, Jules Fisher 
had a remote follow spot. Uh, it was a, it was a park hand with a couple motors from, I want to say it was like the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, and I was very fortunate in the, uh, in the, in the mid nineties to, he dragged it out of his warehouse and brought it down to our shop and we, we refurbished it for him a little bit. And it was, I mean, it was very, very antiquated. I mean, it was just, it was like a joystick kind of, uh, or it was a couple wheels that you had to drive to remotely follow somebody. Right. Um, and even, even, um, very light in like 81 or 82 had a, uh, had done a, a joystick. Uh, John Covington had designed a, a joystick control, um, component for the VL ones. Uh, and John actually, when we were in, when we were in the hot and heavy development for ground control, John actually brought that over to us and it was something that we got to look at and play with. And I was like, it was an amazing piece of history, Yeah. but that certainly added to it. informed us on, you know, our development path. Yeah. So I mean, because, you know, the, the other, the other systems were obviously quite choppy. If you remember seeing those things mm -hmm. live, right. They just, they didn't, they looked very unnatural. It didn't look like a follow spot operator up there. It looked like a moving light, which is what it was, right. Kind of trying to cut across an X axis and movement. And it just kind of chopped up with the radio transmissions and stuff. And I understand yep. this system is completely smooth, right. So on an X axis, it moves kind of like butter, right. Yeah, that's correct. We we actually had to go in and um, so you know it's a system. It's you know there are multiple components to this, um, and you need all these various components to have it work together. Uh, they all have to work together to work properly. And I mean, it wasn't just like bolting a camera to to a fixture. We actually went in and redid all the motor. Uh, all the motor code, all the motor tuning and the fixtures to be more responsive, you know, cause one of the things that we were really concerned with was, you know, overshoot where you stop, you know, you stop on a performer, but the light keeps on moving and stuff like that. Right. Um, before, you know, it stops. Um, so that was that we spent a lot of time on, on tuning the fixtures to, to be more responsive and to be able to do that. Uh, and, and fortunately for us, um, the the fixture you know our fixtures uh, are using servo motors so it gave us a much higher degree of control uh to deal with uh, the overshoot than you would necessarily have with a stepper motor um stepper motors obviously though i mean everyone uses steppers and i mean you can you can get those pretty dialed in uh uh pretty well but the fact that we had servo motors already in our in our fixtures uh actually helped us and sped up the development. So, Chris, because ground control for dummies, what exactly is it? So it, it, it's, it, it's several components. So we have a fixture. Um, uh, we, have, we have a family of fixtures from a long throw down to a short throw variant. Um, it has a, uh, an integrated camera um, that outputs a, a video, HDSDI video, 1080i. Um, and the, the fixture is connected to something called a truss box, a truss bot, and the fixture connecting to the truss box uses an umbilical. It has a DMX cable, obviously, for control of the fixture. It has a BNC, uh, you know, RJ6 uh, video cable, so that's transmitting the video to the truss box. And then it has a 4-pin XLR that uh, provides power and control for the camera. So all these feed into a truss box where basically the truss box is just a, a converter and it converts all these different signals and protocols into a fiber, op, uh, into a fiber optic output. 
And, and the advantage of this is with the fiber optic, we can be up to 2,000 feet away uh, with the controller. And it's a fiber optic all the way down to the controller on the ground. And the controller is purposely built and designed to mimic the form factor of a follow spot. So you hold it and operate it like you would with a, a normal follow spot. And then you're just looking um, at a screen, you, which would mimic, correct. mimic the idea of looking at a performer, and you're just aiming at that performer on the screen, right? That's correct. Yeah, it, the screen has a... Uh, uh, we have a targeting reticle built in, and so we can, you know, you, all you got to do is point and shoot. And wherever the performer runs, uh, the fixture is always pointing at the, you know, because the camera's mounted on the fixture, you know, you always have the point of view of the, as if you were standing next to the fixture right. on the screen. And it sounds to me like it, it is a family in that um, it's not fixture agnostic. You can't use it with Martin or Roby or whatever. It's, it's made for your fixtures. That is correct. It is made for our fixtures. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of requests. To, a lot of people love the form factor of our system, and we've had a lot of requests uh, to open it up to um, use other uh, fixtures from other manufacturers. Uh, and that is something that we're actually taking a hard look at right now. You know, there's a level of expectation on performance. Yeah. Um, that sounds like so it would be really challenging, you know, because... It really is specific to that fixture and, and the way, you know, the nuances of the fixture, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But you know what? If it was easy, everyone would do it. Right, of course. And, you know, but... Did yeah, I see, is it Robe who has something? Correct. Like sort of a, Robe a has retail some, version a, of this? Yeah, they have a, they have a similar system. Um, it's, uh, they are... Uh, it's a slightly different form factor than our system, yeah. uh, and they license actually the technology. That's something that a lot of people don't realize is that PRG, we have actually a lot of patents, yeah. uh, and we, we license them out to manufacturers, oh, uh, various other manufacturers. So Roby actually is, it's, we've licensed it to Roby to use. Because oh. um, the reality is, is you know, I, I mean, as, as large as we are and as many shows as we do, we're, you know, we can't be everywhere. Um, and you know, the ground control is just one of those products that, I mean, as soon as, I mean, in all my years, it was unbelievable. The response that we got to this, we could not build them. We still can't build them fast enough. Right. Do you um, sell them you know, or just rent just, them? We do. We have sold them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we I sold see. them into a bunch of cruise ships, permanent installations. We even sold them into high schools. Hmm. Um, oh, wow. which is pretty neat. Yeah. I mean, the days. safety, <laughs> safety sells. You know. Of course. Well, safety, convenience, all of the problems that you address yeah. seem to be just amazing. But so post-sale, because I remember from this Martin system and even the Wybron system, and and I'm not comparing them because they're obviously completely different technology, but after you've sold the product, is there going to be like calibration issues and things like that where you have to go back in and tweak it after the fact, or is it pretty straightforward? Uh, it's the whole system's designed to be set up. It can be run as a standalone system or integrated with a lighting controller. You know, the setup time, you know, once you get the fixtures hung, it, just to get everything, you know, get your home positions dialed in, five minutes, if that's... Oh, okay. It, okay. Yeah, it's not complex. You know, when I went, we had a, a high school that we sold it into, and I went up there, and training was all of, like, 30 minutes of training, and, like, wow. you know, high school kids were running it. And that's amazing. No problems with it. That's yeah. really Yeah, weird. and a lot of that, you know, 
a lot of that was just came out of the you know the development cycle that that or the way we actually developed the product. Yeah. Um, you well, know. So you... after, go ahead. No, nope, you go ahead. Well, so what was interesting on this is that, you know, it, once we realized that, like, around 2012 is when we realized, like, hey, that you know, we got to take a swing at this, you know, hardcore, and that's when, like, you know, the te- prior to that, we'd been doing a lot of research about it, but the technology wasn't quite there. If it was there, it was too expensive and things like that. 2012 was when, like things started aligning, like the cost to the video distribution, the cameras, the cost came down. Um, we had the engineering resources available and, you know, and, you know, we started, that's when we started really diving into it. And um, what was interesting about this was we had incredible amount of arguments about the form factor of the controller. Should it be a joystick? Should it be a Wii remote? Uh, should it be, you know, a touchscreen, uh, an iPad, uh, or an Xbox controller? So all we had a lot of internal, a uh, uh, lot of internal arguments, and finally, um, what we ended up doing was, well, let's just, you know, let's just test it. So we ended up putting a, uh, we got a Condor lift, put it in our parking lot in our, in our facility in Dallas, Texas, hung a light with a camera on it. And we proceeded to test every type of variation you could possibly think of in, in controllers, Wii remote, Xbox remote, uh, joystick, iPad, touchscreen, um, encoders, wheels, uh, 3d, uh, 3d joysticks, um, yokes, uh, we tried everything. Uh, it was a couple nights of, uh, I got my, you know, the, the great thing about that was, uh, I got to spend a couple nights running around a parking lot with people, you know, with the light track. Yeah, so I got funny. my uh, steps in that week, uh, which was great. Um, and, and it was interesting that as we tested stuff, um, things that worked really well, like on a 30 foot throw or a 20 foot throw were horrible at a hundred foot throw. Right. Or 200 foot throw. Oh yeah, that's interesting because um, with a moving light, I guess that would change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and things that worked well at 100 foot were awful at like you know 20 foot. Um, it, it it was like you know, and there were things that like you know I was, I was on the camp of like a joystick was the way to go. There's just no way. I mean, like you think about Robocams and gaming. I'm like the joystick's it, guys. This, I'm telling you. Yeah. I got on the joystick. 30 seconds in, I said, this is not the, we're not going to do a joystick. Well, it would both be difficult to operate, but it would look weird too when you're watching the spots move. You know what I mean? They wouldn't, it wouldn't look like a follow spot. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's brilliant in its simplicity. You know, it's, it's just like, uh, I remember when we were talking about the space frame, you know, again, it's just, it's solving a real problem and it's relatively simple when you look at it. But, you know, the, the result being so massive in, in what it does to truck packs and to the weight of the rig and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's really cool. So, I mean... It, the other interesting thing was, you know, you know, I had a bunch of engineers, mechanical, electrical, uh, a bunch of guys who had toured before, a bunch of us had toured before. So, we we all had a jaded opinion as to how it should be and what it should do and everything. And, you know, so one of the things, one of the, one of the things in my mind was, you know, the reality of rock and roll touring is that oftentimes you're in the middle and you're somewhere in a, 
in a far-off location in the United States, and you're although you have stagehands, and oftentimes they're not full-time stagehands. They're you know firefighters, insurance salesmen, part-time. You know, stagehand is not their full-time job. Right. So we had to approach it. You know, my approach on it was like I want someone who's never run a follow spot before. So we had a couple engineers who'd never, ever run a follow spot. And I said, so when we started narrowing down to this form factor, I'm like, okay, you guys step up. And it was amazing. Five, you know, five minutes in, they're like, okay, able to follow people and do everything they need to do, having never That's touched really a follow cool. spot, never having any uh, previous experience. But and that, for me, was the light bulb. Color and iris on. and stuff, is, is that typically controlled by the operator or the lighting director? Lighting director typically controls color. Uh, the operator handles uh, uh, iris. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that. Most typically when we operate these, the lighting console's handling color is handling edge and zoom, um, primarily because zoom in follow spot world is a function of intensity yeah. or can affect intensity. So like the operator, the, con- the, the, the console operator will set the zoom and effectively uh, set the intensity level. And then the local operator of the controller is just driving iris for beam size. Where are they positioned, the guys operating these things? It's been funny, you know, so we got the guys out of the air and we've created a new problem. Like, where do you put them? Where do you put them? I mean, they could go backstage, they could go, you know, anywhere really, right? Just like drones. Yeah, but I'll tell you that it's it's been an interesting problem because space backstage is at a premium when you think about all the cases and carts and things like that. So I've seen everything from, uh, I've seen ground control put in uh, like a bathroom. Oh my God. Bathroom. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, yeah, I've seen it uh, on one show. We ran the fiber and just we put the guys in a truck in the back of a semi that was on the loading dock. That's crazy. Um, yeah, that we've crazy. been under the stage. It's it's been it's been insane. That's that's everywhere. an interesting problem. That's a very interesting problem. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, because guess... you know, it's it, they take up you know they takes up some room, so you know yeah. that you gotta you gotta put them someplace. Well, so the next thing is to be able to uh, you know to do it via VPN or whatever, and have them sitting back in the PRG shop running spots. You know, it's you know it's something that we've joked about and talked about, and that, you know, it, it, we're looking at it without yeah. a doubt. You yeah. know. Um, there's some, you know, the latency is the the big issue there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's, you know, you can get a, you know, with the way broadcast systems are these days, we you can get low latency, but it's really expensive. I mean, you um, got guys, but that you, got, is, you got guys in Colorado bombing the shit out of, you know, exactly. sites in, <laughs> in exactly. uh, the right, exactly, you know. Right? So we should yeah. be able to figure this one out, right, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Chris, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to give you an open invitation. Anytime you've got something new or or exciting that you're working on and you want to talk about it, feel free to shoot us an email or give us a call and and we'll bring you back on again cuz uh you're a you're a wealth of information. I would love to. You know, there's definitely I'd love to have a conversation about some of the infrastructure things that we've been working on here and and, and, and in the industry. So, well, I'll tell you yeah. what. Let's let's do that. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thanks, it, Chris. Chris. You bet. Thank you, guys. All Have right, a good man. one. Hello. Howard? Yeah. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. Is this Henry? This is Marcel, Marcel with his convoys. It's oh, Marcel with his convoys. Oh, I'm trying to 
understand your voices. So, uh oh. Well, I'm the interesting okay. one. Henry's the one who's going to ask you like really stupid technical questions, and I'm the oh, one. Well, that's, I'm the one that's going to want to know like what brand of underwear somebody wears or something. You know. Exactly. Oh yeah. The shallow well, questions okay. will come from me. Yeah. I'm the one that interrupts a lot. So. No, Henry is the sushi king. That's right. I was gonna I was gonna bring that up actually in the podcast today to tell you the truth. <laughs> sushi connoisseur, where's the best sushi you've ever eaten? Yeah. Exactly. So where is it? For me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's too many good places, man. Well, Nobu is my favorite. For real? <laughs> Are you really a Nobu fan? Really? Well, I I like it. You know, it's like I used to love Matsuhisa. Yeah. You know? Nobu Almost. is to me it's it's um you know, it's like the Hollywood sort of of sushi. Like it's it's not I don't know. For me it's never been the best quality sushi. It's just like a fluffy environment and you know, it's expensive and all that stuff. So Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Up there. Yeah. But Matsuhisa was really my I mean, I've never had anything bad in that place. Where, where's that? Is that's not the that's one in, in LA. It's oh, uh, right on right. La Cienega. What's the one in Vancouver, like the king of sushi, the old guy who, you know, even before that movie, I dream Tojo. of Euro or whatever, Hero. Yeah, Tojo. Tojo. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah that yeah, place no, is outrageous. He's, yeah, he's good. There's one right across the street from where I live now, downtown Toronto, called Miku. That's amazing. I actually mm. uh, took Brad Schiller, you know, Brad Schiller took me there, actually. Oh, yeah? There you go. I didn't know you yeah. lived downtown. I live right on the lake. Oh, nice. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. So have you been to any basketball games yet? We did the opening for the Raptors. Okay. So I was I was there. I mean, it's it, it, it's hard getting in there. Oh, I you know, can only you imagine. You have season tickets. You know, I used to have no problems getting in that building. when I, my, my best friend was Billy Ballard. You know, his father was Harold Ballard, who yeah. owned the yeah. Toronto Maple Leafs. But Billy passed away about four or five years ago. And right. with it went my... Uh, entrance to the building right your privileges <laughs> well, yeah, my privileges my private box you yeah. know all that good stuff <laughs> and henry you because know? you probably have no idea what the hell we're talking about so the raptors are in the nba finals, finals. first time ever and i believe it's the first oh, yeah. canadian team ever to make the nba finals so it's a pretty yeah, it's a, pretty big deal in canada it's crazy i actually fr from where i live I could hear the crowd roaring because they have this thing out in front of the building. When the building gets sold out, they have this huge Jurassic Park. Know, yeah, Jurassic Park. They have that video wall up there, and it's like, you know, two thousand people standing out in front, and they're just going nuts. And I could hear that. I think it's more than two thousand, Howard. From what I'm seeing on well, television, it looks like fifty thousand. It's not. They've they've actually limited it. That oh. place is like surround. There must be a hundred and fifty cops there. And barricades, and they put trucks across the road. It's a, it's it's amazing. It's really cool it, to it see. It did in the early days. They used to let them get away with maybe ten thousand. You know, mm. it just looks big. It looks like fifty thousand, but it's not. it sure does. Yeah, I thought it was a lot more than two thousand people. No, it's around two thousand max. It's, so it's game three tonight, right? Third game. Yeah, it is. Everybody's going nuts. <laughs> yeah. So what's the, what's it stand at right now? Is it two zero? One one. One no, one. No, okay. One one tied up, yeah, and yeah. Uh, only because they had a terrible. What was it? The second quarter, I guess, the other night where the they were no the last the last quarter. If they would have gotten as many of the shots they made in the basket, they would have won. Uh, but 
they missed every shot they took. It was like they just choked at the end of that game. Yeah, that's terrible. It's crazy, you know. They were looking like they were coming back, and they got a few points behind. Then all of a sudden, they got killed again. So, so hey. I was, I was going to ask you. You were talking about sushi. Did you ever have to wear a kimono? <laughs> no, I never wore the kimonos. No. Only the guys wore the kimonos. Are you kidding? The only thing we had to wear on one tour was lab coats. Oh, really? On Tess for Echo, everybody was walking around with white lab coats. That's funny. That's hilarious. I know. It, I, it was pretty funny. I'm having a I'm having a pretty fun time imagining you in a kimono, though. I mean, it's uh, I'm sure that's that's humorous. That's a visual, that's for sure. So, <laughs> Howard, one of the things that I didn't know, and I actually, uh, you know, I've known you a long time, but I had to go do some research before doing this podcast because I didn't want to sound totally stupid. But I didn't know that you actually started in the business. Like, I, I believe it might have been even the video that they created for the Parnelli Awards that I watched. And mm-hmm. um, you walked into a record company office and basically demanded that they sign your band. And, yes. um, and you know, that really didn't go that well, I don't think. Uh, so what was, what was oh. that all about? Uh, well, you know, it started... When I was really young, like I had a band, and uh, what did you, you play? Know, we, I played uh, bass guitar. Oh, so did and I. And keyboards, though, right? Yeah, I played bass guitar. I played uh, a little bit of keyboards. You know, I just dabbled in a lot of things. When I was a kid, I was I was inspired by. I had the opportunity because I grew up in New York City to go to the Fillmore East a lot. Mm. And the Fillmore East had some amazing shows back in the uh, 60s and 70s. And, you know, I think one of the first shows that I ever went to was the Mothers of Invention in the Garrick Theater in uh, Greenwich Village. That's cool. I know. It it was. It was crazy. And that's when they had their absolutely free album. It was the first time I ever saw a show. And then, you know... I was inspired one day when I was in New York. It took me three weeks of like uh, applying for for gigs and, and and you know trying to figure out how I'm going to do this because I was in university. I went to university for a year, and I got thrown out of the university by the dean for a fraternity prank. Then I went sour, and <laughs> it was uh, it was horrible. And what was and, that, Howard? Uh, oh, there was. Uh, Couple of the brothers in the uh, in the fraternity had these uh, these girls that said, "Listen, you know, if you can get us a horse, we've always wanted a horse. We'll do anything you guys want." <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> and uh, I remembered seeing you know a place that had like horses, and I didn't know what it was. I just knew where, I just knew that you can drive to it, and the horses were pretty close to the back gate. <laughs> whatever it was and then i had these guys that at the time i was living on ocean avenue in long branch went to this uh this call it was called monmouth college at the time now it's called monmouth university okay. but it was in long branch new jersey you know and bruce springsteen headquarters down there yep. where actually bruce was playing in every little club you could find at the time and uh you know when the uh the fraternity brothers um said, you know, if we can get this, it'll be great, and we'll bring the horse up to your house. 
And I'm thinking I'm living in a garden apartment on Ocean Avenue <laughs> on the second floor. Oh, yeah, so where I the hell am I going to put a horse? It, it's got to be a small horse. I've got to get it in the back of my van. So whatever it is, it's going to be a pony of some sort, right? <laughs> so I got these guys that lived downstairs underneath me. And they were like Vietnam veteran guys. And they were like all gung-ho. Yeah. I said, listen, I don't know how I'm going to get in here because, it's you know, you need a a chain cutter or something to get through that lock. He goes, don't worry about it. We have all the stuff you need. So I grabbed two of those guys and we went down to this place and cut the chain and opened the gate and grabbed a little pony. And I had this white, I had this white bed sheet thinking that'll be great. We'll just hide it under the white bed sheet. (laughs) Nothing strange about that. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. And we just, got this horse into my van with a horse head between the driver's seat and the back. <laughs> and the other two guys, are, they followed me with their truck, right? And they parked like across the street. And we got the, long story short, we got the horse and we brought it in. We pushed it up the stairs at three in the morning on Ocean Avenue oh in Long Branch, New Jersey, which is not the coolest place because <laughs> it's crawling with, with police cars. But anyway, we pushed the horse under the white sheet, up the staircase, into the apartment. And I had cleaned out my bedroom so that it was just a square room. And then we put the bed in the living room, and uh, we put the horse in there. And it was shitting everywhere. Oh, it was, my God. It was horrible. Well, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was a cute little thing. Oh anyway. My God. We had it in the house, and then, of course, the girls come over, and they're like, well, I don't know what we're going to do with this now. And I'm like, well, you wanted it. Here it is. You know? This is this is your thing. That's so, so appropriate. The yeah, that music, music was very appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> you like that? And the, uh, that was my phone. i got to turn this off. Hang on a second. <laughs> I didn't know you were using a 360 replay unit as <laughs> we were talking. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, so... Uh, Finally, you know, we got the horse up there, and uh, the girls didn't want it. Now we had to get rid of it, but we had to leave it. The girls overnight. didn't want it. That's brutal. No, they they just went. You know. Anyway, they so didn't, they didn't think you were going to do it. No, they <laughs> didn't. And when we did it, they were like, "Oh my God, I don't know what we're going to do with this." I said, "Listen, you wanted it; it's yours. You take it out of here." And they went, "No, we can't do that." I said, "Well, then you're going to keep up the rest of your deal," which they, you know. Had no problem with it. And then, uh, well, that's good. After, There's a after happy that, ending. I was not really. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't. So now we have the horse there in the apartment, shitting for 24 hours, and my my roommate and I have to take shifts because we're going to school at the same time, and we have to take shifts watching it so it doesn't get out of hand. So we you can never leave it alone. Right. And then the next night, we uh, sort of scooped up all the shit that was all over the place, put it in the trash can, and uh, there was a big construction site where they were building a mall, and it was just all forest that they were knocking down, so we put the horse out there oh and let it God. run free. And oh that was the end of that. And then we we came back to the house, and we had a Lysol the hell out of the house. Yeah. And once the house was all Lysoled out and clean, we were good, and then there was a knock at the door, and it was the uh, the landlord saying he's getting complaints. What kind of wild animal do you have in there? <laughs> getting yeah. complaints of bad smells and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, 
we don't have any animals in here. And they're like, he says, I got to come in. Let me in. So he let him in. The place smelled like a hospital wing. <laughs> we had just finished Lysoling the hell out of the place and putting it back, you know. And uh, so he came and goes, I don't know what you're up to. But I'm getting complaints of really bad smells and blah, 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 because the, the dumpsters are in the back, and I guess we're throwing the shit in the dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to make a long story short. So the school um, threw you out for that one. The school threw me out yeah. for that. And, sounds, you know, we got busted. It sounds like because, you might have deserved it, right? Yeah, so well, not- apparently, apparently this this pony that we stole was like Tony Soprano's gift to his daughter that oh they were keeping God. at this facility that we walked into. We didn't know what the facility was. Later, found out it was um, the Mammoth Raceway, and it was the back lot. <laughs> it was like not good. So it turned into like a federal issue, oh, and then uh, yeah, it so, just got worse. Anyway, so yeah, we got we got thrown out. So then I was like, I didn't know what to do, and uh, my. Uh, my dad wasn't real happy about getting no. thrown out. And um, I went to New York and I always have this, this energy. I, I always feel electricity, you know, I don't know why I just, I get excited. I feel this electricity inside and I went out and I walked the streets of New York, knocking on people's doors. I got a list of record companies, agencies. And then I remembered when I was on the student council committee, I knew this guy named Sean LaRoche who was affiliated with the who and he had an office that I used to go to his office and bug his secretary endlessly, right? And uh, one day I was sitting down on the corner of Central Park South and, and you know, right where Central Park is and 7th Avenue or yeah. whatever that comes together. And I'm seeing all these people coming out of limos and going in front of hotels. And I'm thinking, wow, what, is, what, what, what do these people do to be able to afford this and living in these really expensive hotels and you know, they must have a really, really great lives. You know, that was when you're young, you, you know, you're dreaming. And I had a dream that, you know, one day I wanted, you know, have my own limo and do all this. And But it's not realizing how much hard work there is to no shit, yeah. put into something that you're doing. But I had this energy. And this guy, Sean LaRoche, you know, he would never see me. And then I was there so much that I uh, I actually got to see the pattern of his how his secretary leaves <laughs> for lunch. And I'm thinking, <laughs> when the secretary left, I just went in. Yeah. And I, got new, and I just walked into his office. So I ride in on my white pony. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The stolen horse. I come, yeah. I come into the, anyway. So, yeah. you know, I'm in there and I'm telling him what, what my dream is. And he's just looking at me like, you know, kid, you are so fucked. This is not going to happen. <laughs> You know, and the fact that you're wasting my time with your pipe dream. And then he then he says, here's the reality. You need to learn this business. And you know, I, the fact that you're here, okay, so you have some balls. You came into my office. And now the only thing you can do is try to get find a job. I'm not giving you one. He says, but I do know a few people. I'll put some names down. You could use my name. And you're going to start at the bottom. You're going to work your way up. You're going to learn about the business. Then you're going to see how, how silly you were walking into my office asking me these stupid fucking questions. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll go for it. So he gave me a bunch of names. And one of the names on the list was this guy, Jeff Franklin. And he owned a company at the time called Action Talent that had two bands, Brooklyn Bridge and Stevie Wonder. And... He was in the process, what I didn't know, he was in the process of starting another agency, calling, uh, calling it American Talent International. 
and he was moving his office to this building, 888 7th Avenue, across from Carnegie Hall. And he was occupying a corner of the 21st floor, which was uh, right uh, above Premier Talent, which was another agency that Frank Barcelona was uh, running at the time. So the two biggest agencies in the world will be in this building. I happened to stumble into the office and ask for a job, Jeff Franklin, and he gave me a job at delivering coffees. <laughs> and he says, you're going to deliver coffees for the agents. You're going to run around. You're going to work the mailroom. He goes, uh, I'm going to pay you $75 a week. That's it. And if you fuck up and you're late, once you're gone. Yeah. So I said, okay. Well, in that next 10 months of running around all over the place with some really crazy things like delivering master reels of tapes to uh, Rod Stewart's managers in hotels and going to uh, the manager of this band called Frigid Pink at the time yeah. and delivering things to them and then running around with Deep Purple and delivering things to them. And I, I was like delivering packages to all these people who are famous. And uh, it got to be pretty crazy. And um, I was understanding what they were doing and how the agents were working. And I, I had the opportunity to like hang out with a lot of these agents who were explaining to me how the contracts were written. And uh, over time, I got one of the universities near where I live to purchase Fleetwood Mac and this group called Flash. And uh, I put a contract together. And the girl in the uh, contract department was really leery about letting me do this. And she said, the only way I'll submit this is if you get a deposit. So I went to the school, got a deposit, and uh, came back, and it was real. And then it floated across the president's desk, which was Jeff Franklin. And when he saw that, he realized this is a kid from the fucking mailroom is booking shows. <laughs> yeah, and my awesome. fucking agents, he goes, I'm sitting here. Yelling at my agents, I, I, I overheard a meeting one day. That's, how, that's what inspired me to do this, of him yelling at his agent and going, I'm just trying to get this uh, one show in this week, and none of you guys can deliver this, right? So anyway, so I delivered the show, and he couldn't believe it. So he says, if you want to be an agent, there's a lot of things that you're going to have to do in life. He goes, you're not going to like it, but it's a lot of work, and uh, I'll give you an opportunity. So he did, and then he put me in an office with this guy, Bruce Payne, who is now the manager of Deep Purple. And, wow. uh, you know, so Bruce did you want to be an agent or, or was no, this just I, a cool I didn't gig? Want to be you, a, you just wanted a gig in the business. Yeah, I mean, I was happy doing anything. I really didn't want to be an agent. But right. through this whole process, I was taught, like old school, you know, how to deal with things. And uh, I was sent down to promoters all over the United States that were like stiffing bands not paying them what they were supposed to, and they would send me down to collect the money, and oh, I'd have God. to go down there and, and get heavy with these national promoters. And, That's you know, well, at the time, they were all local promoters, but you know, I would go down there and say, listen, you know, you owe Blue Oyster Cult, you know, X amount of dollars, and uh, I heard that you held back, I mean, you know, you weren't you weren't uh, paying them, and uh, all I can tell you is, uh, if I don't have this money in this in cash in this paper bag within 25 minutes from now, you will never get another band ever from our agency. And I always got the money, which was amazing, right? Yeah. So no, ba had no baseball bats, no physical threats. No. Just... <laughs> and, 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 you know, back then, 
they had their strong arm guys that if I ever had a problem, I could just make a phone call. <laughs> it would be yeah. like, here you go. Talk to this guy here. Yeah. And then that would be it. Talk to Rocco. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Cause when you, you know, every time we talk to somebody on this podcast, whether it's Doc yeah. McGee or whoever it is, Wiseman, anybody, you know, everyone's careers seem to have started in a <clears throat> like a hard work hustle mentality where, you know, no, I didn't go to school to learn how to do any of these things. I was just a hustler and I, you know, I figured it out along the way by working real hard and doing the things that nobody else wanted to do. And yeah, uh, I mean, it's such a lesson for kids today, but nobody's going to listen to you. Cause they just look at you like you're a crazy old man, you know, cause I even try and do it with my own son and half the time he mm -hmm. thinks I'm nuts. So well, all the young guys think you're nuts because they, yeah. don't, they don't, they don't have a clue. They haven't lived their life yet and they haven't experienced, you know, so they need to do it on their own. That's another reason why I like helping people. It's like my whole life, you know, you can be a hostage to your ego and, I try to not have a huge ego. Yeah. It's hard sometimes, but I've never acted. I mean, there'll, there'll be a few people to, to say that's bullshit, but you know, I've always tried to be the nicest person that I could be. Yeah. And, um, well, honestly speaking, I mean, in your favor, so I, this morning I put out something on, on the geezers Facebook page about when I brought my son to um, soundcheck <laughs> at, at uh, Coral Sky Amphitheater. And, yeah. you know, you took him under your wing and you brought him on, I mean, a funny story when you brought him on your tour bus and, and he goes, you got any snacks on here? And you're like, well, yeah, I do. What do you like? And he goes, I like goldfish and chocolate milk. Boom. Out comes goldfish and chocolate milk. And I'm like, Howard, what the hell are you doing with goldfish and chocolate milk on your tour bus? And, well, we had uh, everything on that. Yeah. I mean, it was hilarious. So my son to this day thinks that you're some kind of a God, you know, cause you were just wow. so nice to him and you let him, you let him run the lights until he blasted the band with fog, uh, during sound check. And then you were like, okay, time's up. You're done. He got fired from his first gig. So, Oh yeah. Yeah, no, so Howard, you. you've always been super humble and you've always like I know any times any time I've brought clients or anything out to uh, even that horrible version of Queensryche or no, not Creek Van Halen with. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Gary Sharon singing, I, you know, even then, I mean, you were just always so good to whatever guests I brought out to shows. And and uh, so, yeah, I mean, we deal with lots and lots of egos out there. And I would say that, you know. You have every right to have an ego, but you're uh, you're such a humble guy. Yeah, you know, I'm just grateful for the for the opportunity that I was extended, yeah. you know, by this guy Jeff Franklin. And yeah. um, you know, everybody says like, you know, how did you make the leap from the business side of it into the lighting side? But the thing is, I was always like part of the lighting uh, crew. Even like started in high school when when nobody wanted to run lights for shows they would put on in these gymnasiums with the old piano boards and you know they didn't understand about patching and just you know the, the teachers that were there were the ones that were doing it and they weren't available and it wouldn't happen so I volunteered to come in there and make it happen for them and then um, over time with the agency when I would travel with these bands and making sure they got paid 
they would always ask you the same questions after the show. Like, what did you think of the show? Yeah. And I would say, man, you guys played great, but uh, there is no show. Right? They were saying, what are you talking about? Yeah. There is no show. I said, you're just, it's just, you're playing music under some lights that are just not doing very much. And at that time, very few bands had lighting guys because they wouldn't want to pay for it. They always had their sound guy, and they would hire like local. You know, you're in a theater, so the local theater guys would run lights for you. Yeah. So I came up with some concepts. I said, you know, let's, you know, I could come up with some concepts for you and. I started making money on the side while I was doing the agency gig, and then one day the uh, owner of the agency called me in his office and said, I've got a question for you. I said, what's that? And he goes, uh, who do you work for? I said, what do you mean? He goes, who do you work for? I said, I work for you. He goes, yeah, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you're taking money from my bands to do lighting shows, and oh, I don't word. see any of that, and they're my bands, and if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be there. So where's my share? And I was a young kid, and I'm yeah. like, no, oh, I spent it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, that just leaves me a couple choices here. So I said, what is it? He goes, yeah, you have to talk to one of my partners, and they'll tell you. And partner came up to me and goes, you're going to Canada to work for this club band. And they're called Rush, and they're going to be the next Led Zeppelin. I said, well, what's my other choice? <laughs> and he goes, you're fired. Yeah. You pick. Oh, wow. So I was sent So it was punishment. To... You were sent to Canada, sent up <laughs> yes, north was... as punishment. Yes. So, oh, Howard, what year was this? This was, what, 74, 73? It was the beginning of 74 because <laughs> I actually went up to Toronto in August of 74. And at the time, there was no drummer in Rush. They were... Uh, John Rutsey had left for medical reasons, and they were auditioning drummers. And, you know, they were going through that audition process. Mm. And, my, and my job was supposed to be to go up there, teach them how to tour, um, you know, become tour manager. And I assigned myself to do lights. And uh, I guess the rest was history oh, after shit, that. Oh, huh? shit, And you, you haven't the, been able to the, shake them ever since. Well, you know, it was a mutual admiration society. <laughs> yeah, it sure seems like it. <laughs> you know, it. and it, it, it worked out really, really well for uh, 43 years. Yeah, I think I was reading yesterday that you did every single Rush tour, every single Rush show, well, other than some of the award shows or whatever, but you did every tour except for one. or Roll every, the bone. And that was because you were uh, Queensryche had exploded at that point, right? Yes, and yeah. I had developed a, a concept for Queensryche where we took the Operation Mindcrime album and brought it to life on, on, on the screen. And I did an, an interface where the band would um, interface with the screen in real time. So they would have Sister Mary from the Operation Mindcrime right. doing a duet with, with Jeff Tate in I real time. I remember it well. I remember I it well. Too. I was a yeah. huge Queens, Queensryche fan. Yeah, so, you know... Like I developed, they came to me after seeing Rush, and Krista Garmo, in fact, was the one who, who came up and said, "Listen, you know, we love your work. What can you do for us? We have this concept, and blah blah blah." So I told them, "Let's like bring it to life." And I had a bunch of animators that I was using up in Toronto for Rush. I said, "You know, we'll put together an animation. I mean, animation is expensive. You could easily spend a million dollars on animation." And at the time, Q Prime were their management, and we we cut a deal, and we did spend a lot of money. 
but it was, as you saw, the end yeah. result was pretty that spectacular. Was incredible. That was oh, definitely yeah. one of those memorable tours, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the few and, successful rock operas out there when you really think about it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and I love, con you know, conceptual collaboration. And it's, you know, I, I work in a different, you know, realm. I sort of fly under the radar, you know. I'm, I feel, uh, because I'm a musician, I feel the music. I'm able to translate the lighting equipment to the music. I listen to the lyrics. I, I try to get into what they're, you know, the message what yeah. they're delivering, and then yeah. I want the lights to de help to deliver that message. Yeah. And uh, I find myself in a unique situation because I run the console as well as design the show. There's not a lot of people that do that. Right. And um, I design it in a way where I'm using computers, but I'm also using manual uh, control yeah. on top of the computer programs, which, you know, now the people are running time code. I just watch people sitting behind a console and just pushing a button once, and then it's like, for me, it's sterile. Yeah, take the human element out of the show, and that's not what I'm about. Yeah, and, you know. So it's it's 1974, funny. and you're you're stuck in Canada, and you see this band, and you're going through the auditioning process with them, and you're supposed to teach them to tour. I mean, obviously, at some point something clicked and went, Hey man, these guys, these guys are pretty good. Like this could actually work out for me. When did that well, happen? Well, I'll tell you, well, after they, they found Neil, I mean, I heard them, you know, when they were auditioning all sorts of drummers, you know, drummer from Max Webster, drummer from, you know, it's like they went through a bunch of drummers. Yeah. And then a friend of a friend said to them, listen, now, this drummer just came back from England and, we know him. He's from St. Catharines, and uh, he's really amazing. And he's playing in a band in St. Catharines that's quite successful. And maybe you want to give him a shot. And then you know, Neil shows up, I believe, with his Slingerland kid at the time, and it was like sets up. And the first minute he started playing, it was like, oh my gosh, you're in, right? Yeah. So those guys chose Neil, and uh, I think the first time where I was electrified by these guys was after they finished rehearsing and they were sent out to do the Uriah Heap tour in 1974. And the first show we had was at the Civic Arena, which was probably the one of the only times that roof opened during the show hmm. while they were playing. And they couldn't close it after that. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it sort of got stuck. And I know it took them a long time. And once they did finally... I think a week later, get it closed. It stayed closed. They never forever. opened it again? No, they wow. never opened it again. I know. That's an interesting and, story. Um, but I remember, you know, everything was ground-supported back then. So you could open the roof and not have to worry about rigging and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a sold-out show. It was the first time they played in front of an audience of that nature. So later on, we went to the Capitol Theater. About a month after that, we're in the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, and they put on a show that was so electric and so amazing, the energy. And I actually felt this energy that, you know, that was amazing, and their sound was incredible. And everything just, for me, just went, wow, these guys are really fucking good. Yeah. You know, they're, they're amazing musicians. And by then, Neil had sort of worked himself in. 
he was sort of an outcast when he first started, but no one knew what to make of him because he was just, he was, you know, he didn't, he came out of nowhere. So he was sort of new and, uh, I came out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, I was just the brash American that came up to Canada and told the Canadians that everything they had up there was not correct. It was, they had bad pizza. Right. I tried to, you know, yeah. and they're like, oh, fuck, fuck off, you gank. <laughs> it was just like, yeah. you know, it was like, they try to turn me on all the stuff that they said was amazing. That guy. And then I'm like, really? Yeah. Okay. I'll give it a shot. And then it was like, this is awful. Oh, not, nothing in Canada is good enough for you. Yeah. You're from the States and you know, you're funny. a yank. And well, <laughs> That's funny. And you know, I mean to then become synonymous with, you know, the most Canadian band ever probably, uh, yeah. you know, is, is so funny. And, you know, I always forget that you're not Canadian. You know that that you were from yeah, New York because you talk like a Canadian now too. You talk more Canadian than I do, and my first twenty five years was spent in Canada, or twenty six. So. Well, you know something. I've been up here a long time. Yeah, I'm like an it, honorary, honorary Canadian. It. Yeah, there was like my first introduction when I first came to Canada was a show in Cochrane, Ontario, when it was minus forty something. Oh my god! And um, I had flown in, you know, from New York, and I'm driving with the guys. And we're driving up, heading north. And uh, Getty says to me, like, um, where are your warm clothes? Because I was wearing a <laughs> denim jacket, right? And I'm like, I'm wearing them. What are you talking about? Yeah. And they're like, you, you realize if something happens, we have an accident right now, that you're going to die? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, when you go out of this car, you're going to be in ridiculous freezing cold and you're not going to be able to stand it. And we want you to pull over. We want you to go out of the car and take a nice deep breath <laughs> and then tell us what you think. So I'm like, sure. So, you know, I pull the car over off the side of the road. I get out of it. I slam the door and then I hear them lock the door of the car. <laughs> out, right. Yeah. And I take this big, deep breath like they said yeah. and it felt like someone took two knives and sliced my nose open <laughs> it hurt like hell yeah. and i'm like whoa and it was so cold i put my hand on the car to get in and they locked it and then my hand stuck to the oh handle of the car and they're all laughing inside they're like As i'm like do. open the fucking car <laughs> and then they finally did and they let me in they go well what do you think? And I'm like, I think I need to get, he goes, yeah, next truck stop, you're getting a park. And he goes, you're going to need it. It's like horrible. And we pull into this town of Cochrane and we're staying in the worst hotel you could ever think. There was like the fire escapes ropes going out the window. And there was like one washroom per floor for everybody to share. And when we were checking in, there were some local natives that were clubbing each other over their head. With <laughs> these huge logs. And I think I played that place. On. <laughs> yeah, I remember that place. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, it just, that sounds like every small town with a tavern in Western oh, Canada yeah. that I played at, you know? Oh, Howard? Hello. Howard? Hey, is Howard there? We're actually on he a podcast with him and we lost him somehow. Yeah, our power went out. Uh-oh. <laughs> nice. I'll, <laughs> I'll pass you back to him one second. Thank you. With our LSG smoke So that was very Canadian, the power going out. So we were somewhere in bumfuck Ontario. We were in Cochrane, Ontario. Hanging out right? a window with the ropes from the fire escape, yeah. yeah. No, so, so they got booked in Cochrane, Ontario, and they got booked by their agent in Canada to do what's called a dance. 
they had to play three oh sets. Oh, my God. So they played three sets, but they they didn't have enough material to, so they had to repeat the material from the last set. And the promoter wanted them to play longer, and they said, "Listen, we're contracted to do three sets. We did the three sets, but we don't have any more material." And he's like, "Well, you can't leave. We need you to play another set." And then we had to run out of town. We got like booted out of town with the whole town chasing us in the trucks. It was crazy. <laughs> anyway, that, that was my introduction. Sounds like the Blues Brothers. Canada's version of the Blues Brothers, you know, when they got chased yeah. out of that redneck bar. Yes. Which is a classic. Well, I don't want to scene. bore you with all this. Little... No, no, that ain't boring. That's, trust me. <laughs> well, maybe it is for Henry, but I'm a Rush fan. So, you know, I mean, yeah. for me, I'm in heaven right now, Howard. Keep talking. Keep talking. Don't worry. Queensryche is coming up. That's my yeah, turn. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, when did it get big? So, I mean, this is 74. You're playing three sets at a dance in a club. Yeah, they you know they had their first Rush album released, and that did extremely well. It was broken in Cleveland, Ohio, on WMMS, and there was a, a DJ named Donna Halper that really exploded this. Everybody thought it was the new Led Zeppelin record when it came out, and they sort of uh, they rode the wave, and it was like huge, and it was a huge explosion. But then. We were doing 200 cities a year for the first 10 years. Yeah. And that was a lot of touring. So the band actually routed itself. Like, you know, they grew roots in all these Midwestern towns, and they they used the Midwest and the major cities, and they were constantly playing. And they would sometimes, two or three times a year, if we would go back to a city, and um, we were opening act a lot for bands that were, you know, selling out like Aerosmith yeah, and, uh, you know, Ted Nugent, we were on tours with Ted and, uh, I used to live in Pembroke Pines, Florida and where my house was built, you could see like these little piles of concrete still kind of stacked up behind my house, like in my backyard that they hadn't quite cleaned up to build a strip mall yet, but you know, it was just rubble basically. And every time someone came to my house and looked out my back window, they'd go, Oh my God! I saw Rush and Max Webster there. That's the Sportatorium. Sportatorium, yeah. yeah. Sportatorium. That was a crazy place too. That was out my back window of my house for a few years. The first house I bought down here in Florida. So, that wow, was pretty. I never saw a I show spent... there because I I didn't move here until 1991, but uh, and it was already closed. But it was like literally the rubble of the Sportatorium was in my backyard for a couple of years till they till they. Uh, tore it down or whatever. Yeah, well, one of, so I remember getting tear gassed in the sportatorium. Oh my god! <laughs> when Rush played there, when Neil Peart decided the day before he was going to go to the Caribbean and you know and relax there, well, and then fly in to do the show, and then his flight got canceled or he missed his plane. There were no other flights in. And uh, we had to figure out how to get them from the Caribbean back to there. And we had to hold the doors for hours. And uh, the crowd was getting a bit unruly. And then the cops came in with riot gear and somebody threw a bottle at the cops. And then all hell broke loose. And they tear gassed everyone. But the show went on and we finally got Neil in. But the whole place, the tear gas had gotten into the rafters where the spot ops were working. And they were just complaining all night long about their eyes burning, choking, and 
They were not a happy. It wasn't a happy show. No, <laughs> but it, it, it did. It did go on, and it was like one of those wild events you never forget. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people that remember that that were there because it was sold out. Yeah, that's that's wild. So, what was yeah. your what was your first moving light rig? It was uh wow, very lights. It was the uh, the VL one. What tour was Holy that? Holy smoke! One thousand, right? Yeah. What what tour was that, that? I would have to say somewhere around. Uh, I believe it was the tour after moving pictures, which would be. I think it's actually um, counterparts. Hmm. Or test for echo, or one of those. That seems so recent, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, when yeah, I think so of well, counterparts I and think, test like, for maybe. It could yeah. have been signals, too, because yeah. I remember it was digital. And I was a holdout. I didn't really want to get into the moving lights because everybody was doing it. And I was like, I want to exhaust as much as I can out of the conventional lighting. And I used to use, like, beam projectors, five-degree Berkeys, things that people wouldn't really use outside of theater. Yeah. And I would bring them into the, the – the, you know, everybody hated me, actually, when – I used to bring these five-degree Berkeys because the, the nose of them, I would put color changers on them. The nose was so heavy that, you know, when focusing them was a bitch. And yeah. my guys used to, like, do it because I was – that's the only fixture I can get a geometrical look out of. And I used to fill the gaps with color and, and things like that. But so, Howard, I, I read that you also uh, got ACL lights from a military base. Did you not? That you started to integrate those into some of your shows? Yeah, too, there's a, a, a yeah. When I used to hang out in Washington D.C. quite a bit, in the days when uh, Roy Bennett was working for a group called Face Dancer, and everybody came out of this club called the Bayou, and Cellar Door owned it, and uh, a friend of mine named Tim Pace, who's like a, a tricky kind of guy. Um, I used to hang out with him, and he was like, you know, I think we should go and check out these lighting fixtures. I said, well, what are they? And he goes, they're called marine beacon lights, but I think you would love them because it's right up your alley. So I went and we checked them out. We got them. He got them from an auction, a military auction. They were 13-volt, basically ACLs, and you have to run them in, you know, in, in series of eight, which I didn't like, but we had to do that. So they were the perfect size to put in a park can. So uh, another friend of mine, owned, whose name was Ron Merkel, he owned uh, Lannis Lighting at the time. So we, we said, let's go to Lannis Lighting. We'll throw them in a park can, see what they look like. And we did, and we put smoke in the air, and then I was like, holy shit. They yeah. go for like a quarter of a mile. as We shine him <laughs> out the back door. And yeah. Anyway, to make a long story short, we put them in park cans. They looked amazing, and we had to use them. And, uh, you know, that was... That was probably a year before I was doing Rush. So this was not during a Rush. Before I worked for Rush, we did this. And then Ron decided he liked it so much that he was going to take it out and use it on Little Feet because that was one of his accounts. I'm like, no, I want to use this you know, for my next band. I don't want you to go out with Little Feet. And he said, well, this is my shop. I let you do it. I'm going to use it. So he went out and he, he used them. And then a year and a half later, I put him in the rush rig. And at that time, I was using C-Factor. And then I actually went to C-Factor, and I said to them, um, you know, I'm kind of tired of using these lights. They're all coming up in groups of eight. I like to control them individually. 
And over the next few months, um, they built me a console to my specifications. And Tim Pace from uh, from the Bayou in, in, in Washington built me a console, lighting console, that would enable me to use pin matrices and joysticks to control. I can assign, I could have a joystick that's north, south, east, and west, or two or three, and then I could assign submasters to each one of those positions on the joystick. So I could just take the joystick and move it around north, south, east, and west, and actually do chases with with a pin matrix putting together submasters. That's and cool. it would make the lights do things that no one ever saw before. Yeah. Then And then with the ACLs, I took 10 groups of eight and divided it into 80 individual fixtures with variable chase, and I could choose whatever light I want and create submasters for those and to have them raining down individually or using two from here, two from this group, two from that group, or four from this group. Anyway, it was, there were moments of time that people were just coming up to me going, like, what the hell are you using? Like, what yeah. is that? And uh, it was great. And um, I was always trying to innovate stuff before I went into moving lights. Yeah. And then when I went into moving lights, you know, of course, it was very light. It was really the only game. But I was ten- I, I hated very light because when I first called very light to do sound for Rush, they blew me off like – you know, they said, well, you can call us when you get a real band, you know, and uh, we only do big groups here. And that wow. was Jimmy Page. <laughs> I read it, you know, and then it was funny because we never, ever used sound, Shoko sound after that. And I kept getting calls from uh, people and they were like, well, why don't you give us another chance? I said, no. I said, you were rude. You blew me off. And that's another reason why I didn't want to use their lights in the, in the beginning. But I said, okay, I'll bite the bullet, you know, because I'm a nice guy. You'll never do the sound. Because, you know, we had a company called National Sound, same, right out of the same area where the, where the bayou was. And uh, everybody knew each other there. It was really a, a nice little family scene for a while. Right. And, uh, you know, so I At the I end of the day, it's a relationship family. business. So, you know, sometimes yeah, you, it is. you burn somebody or you, you piss them off well enough, and guess what? It's over for life. It's not just for a couple of weeks. No, so. like I was very proud of, of, of Rush and their musicianship and who they were mm-hmm. as people. And when I called Shoko, who I respected as a company, and got blown off by, you know, in such a rude way. And, you know, later on, we had laughs about it with Jimmy Page. And he said, man, I felt so bad, rest his soul. You know, he said, I felt so bad when I did that to you guys. And, you know, I was on a big ego trip at the time. I'm like, yeah, well, I guess you you paid the price there because it would have been, you know, millions of dollars of revenue over the years. But yeah, no kidding. What can you do? So, Howard, were you using lasers before moving lights, or did you get into the moving lights first and then then the lasers came in? I I was introduced to lasers in uh, in the 70s when I was working with Blue Oyster Cult. And they had a laserist. uh, They called him Dr. David Alfante. And he had this spectrophysics 171 laser on the stage. And I was intrigued by it, you know, seven feet long. I remember the Wait first time <clears throat> the first time I saw Blue Oyster Cult, there was such a, like, just, there was this whole whisper kind of thing that was going on leading up to the show. These guys use a laser. 
you know, and it was such a big <laughs> deal. And I was like, what's that? I got to see it. You know, I got it. And I was probably, I don't know, 12 years old or something. And I oh, was yeah. just completely blown away by it. I'm like, what is this thing? You know, how does it cut through the air like that? You know? Yeah. And at the time I had nothing to do with lighting. I was a musician, but that was uh, really it. But, oh yeah. Well, you know, like stuff like that happens. And like, you know, uh, Eric Bloom, he, uh, he had this ring that he used to put on his hand that was fiber optic fed from the laser. And they did this song where he would go, the joke's on you. And he would point his hand to a mirror ball that was over the stage. And even the laser would come out. It was totally illegal at the time. Yeah. And it would hit the mirror ball with the laser. And it just went, <laughs> people were just like in awe. It was that crazy. Cool. That's oh, so, yeah. It was well, really but cool. I mean, you became really known as you know, a laser guy, I mean, through your work with Rush and a lot of the other things you were doing, but, mm -hmm. um, but your, your company really got into lasers in a big way, right? Oh yeah. I mean, like we, we're still out there like today, you know, we're doing Foo Fighters tool and doing Kid Rock, you know, we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're thriving with a lot of the new technology. We married the two technologies, the old school and the new school together. Not, not many people do that. And, um, we tried to design artful shows rather than flash and trash. We won't do like, you know, we don't like doing the EDM shows, although yeah. we do, Yeah, we do it. But, um, you know, to me, there's, there's no substance to it. But I don't know if I, you heard our we, Brick, Brickman podcast, but he said something funny. He he was like, you know, if I'm on ecstasy and stuff, the last thing I want is you blasting lights in my face. <laughs> oh, you know, I heard that. <laughs> so it's like, kind of funny. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, but that's a very good point, you know, because yeah. an well, EDM show really is an in-your-face uh, lighting show. So mm -hmm. I was the one that put the copper vapor lasers out on the Division Bell tour for Mark. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. No one knows these things. Like, I, I tell you, I fly under the radar. Yeah, I know. I'm you behind do. the scene. I know you. So, cop copper vapors were what red back then, were they not? They were gold. Gold. Copper. And then you had argon after that, right? Green, blue. Well, there's always argon, there's krypton, and there's the, the copper vapors. Copper vapors, I mean, you know, if one of those, like you feed it copper, right? So, it's like if it ever went down, it would take like 40 minutes to reboot. So, we were, we were always like crossing our fingers <laughs> yeah that's hysterical well it, it's so funny the whole laser thing it seems to be sort of low technology but it it really is very high technology to be able to control it and keep keep it out of people's faces and you know keep it well, safe. You, well you know something years ago it was scientific it's scientific it's science it's scientific Years ago, it was a lot more difficult because you had power supplies that were 400 pounds. Yeah. You had water supplies with pumps. You need 60 PSI to cool the glass tube, which if the glass tube cracks, it's twenty to 30,000 to replace it. Yes. Yeah. Insurance companies didn't want to get involved with laser guys. They would say, if we were insuring you, we're going to insure you for four, four breaks, and that's it. After that, you're on your own. Wow. And we, we exceeded that in the first three months we were out on tour yeah. because it's tough. You know, it's glass. You're shipping glass around with, you know, IATSE guys running it every day. And, you know, it requires cold water supplies. And once in a blue moon, you get a hot water supply and then the tube goes. Yeah. And, you know, it's your, it's your responsibility to not assume that you're getting hot water when it's supposed to be cold. Yeah. Anyway, it's, and then you have, you know, you had all your cut glass on the table. I did, I designed the, uh, the hysteria tour for Def Leppard. 
1986, and we put lasers under the stage. I designed that whole rig, lighting and everything. That was the one tour that Faye McMahon um, wasn't available, although he, he'll contest it to this day. But um, Charlie Hernandez was the production manager. I had my assistant, Matt Drusbeck, out there. And um, we put together the first in-the-round show for Def Leppard. Yeah. And we had trap doors for where the lasers sat. And, you know, we would slide the trap door open, and the lasers would come out of there. But those were the same, you know, old-school lasers that we yeah. used up until when the diodes came out. It just revolutionized great tour, lasers. too. I, I remember it so well. And, you know, obviously yeah. very well known for what was going on under the stage at the time, too. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> some of the antics. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of antics. There were some antics. But, but yeah, you know, we, we rehearsed that in Glen Falls, New York, and it was uh, quite a successful tour. I yeah. think uh, Robert Scoville was the sound uh, engineer on that one, and it was a good team of people. Yeah. And uh, I just, once again, you know, sort of sl- slide under the radar on that. Yeah. Because no one knew that I'm the one that put that one together. How how has your you know with your extensive management background, how has your relationship been over the years with with Ray? I would assume that you guys are pretty close. Ray no. Daniels, no. Um, you know we know each other. We don't. We never really hang too so much socially. Oh, I see. I don't. Yeah, I mean he's he's in his own little world and I'm in mine. Oh. I I never I never actually you know worked for Ray. I was always working for the three guys for their their separate company. I was never oh, paid interesting. by Ray. Interesting. Yeah, it was kind of uh, yeah different. I mean, you like were you know, Ray. Yeah, you know Ray was the manager. I looked after the band for Ray for many many years. Yeah. Well, and I didn't really you know? know how close you were with the band until, honestly, I saw that uh, that documentary, um, mm-hmm. Beyond the Lighted Stage. Is that what it was called? Yeah. And I mean, you're all over that movie. You know, you're you're in it so yeah. many times, and you know, of course, my favorite one is is you know where you introduce them to the fact that they could uh, they could demand alcohol on their riders. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, I have a very and bad showing, influence. And they were showing up drunk for gigs after that. So <laughs> nice work there, sir. <laughs> Actually, I, you know, I, I was the... Uh, Peter Minch phoned me up one day in 1983 and said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of the uh, tour manager for Metallica, and I want you to go out there and tour manage them. I said, yeah, so when is this guy going to you know, be told, he goes, when you arrive. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, you're going to fire him and you're going to take all his books and the money and, you know, you're going to take over the tour. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you call him and let him know that? Like, he's not going to know me from a hole in the wall. He goes, he will when you're finished. (laughs) So if you want to go down there. So I had to go down. First of all, I never met the guys in Metallica. This was the Ride the Lightning tour. I had to go down and fire a tour manager they had, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to do, you know, how he was going to take it or anything, but I, I did. I went down there, fired him, you know, and told him the circumstances, and he gave me the finger and said a lot of ugly things, and, uh, and then I gave him his plane ticket, and then he was out. <laughs> That's wild. And then I had to meet the guys in Metallica, but I hadn't met him yet. So I, I found out where their bus was. I called the bus driver, and 
bus driver let me on the bus and I looked at it and it was, you know, I'm like, there's no bar on this bus. There's not nothing to drink. Like what's the story here? So I went out and I just put a full bar on that bus and I stocked it with drinks and all sorts of stuff. I figured this would be a good icebreaker. And then I, the band finally got to meet the band and it wasn't until we went to the gig on the bus when I said, hey, guys, listen, you do a good show tonight. I'm your two new tour manager. We'll celebrate. I put a bar in this bus. And they were like insane out of their minds when they saw that. <laughs> and that was probably this, one of the worst things I could have done because yeah. they were all drinking. Yeah. Like Lars would get out of control, take his clothes off, <laughs> run through the hotels. It was actually fun. Yeah, that's but, hilarious. Uh, that's I know, fun. but he... he and he would never go on stage when he was supposed to. The show was starting. You know, they used to start the show with Fight Fire with Fire, and uh, the stage would fill up with smoke, and everybody would be on the stage except for Lars, who would always be back in the dressing room. And James would go, like, where the fuck is Lars? And I'm like, <laughs> I go down the dressing room. There's Lars sitting around. I said, buddy, I put you on stage once. Why are you back down here? He goes, oh, I don't go on to last. I said, you're getting up there now. And I dragged him up there. I remember one year, I was, his mother said, how has he been? I said, I, he's a bit of a problem every now and then. She goes, I give you permission to hit him if you ever need to. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. are you the one that nicknamed him the Danish prince? Oh, yeah. It was like, <laughs> well, he had a lot to live up to because his father was a famous tennis guy. He was like the John McEnroe type of tennis player. So Lars always was in the shadows of his dad. Torbin Ulrich, his name was, the guy yeah. that... And uh, and then when I had to go back to do Rush, I had to find another uh, tour manager to send out there. So I picked Bobby Snyder, and he goes, "Thanks for picking me. You know that you put me on the bus that flipped over, oh, and God. killed Cliff Burton." I'm like, "I know. I'm sorry." <laughs> like, like I it's your you, fault. I try to give you a. Yeah, yeah, I gave you a gig. I wasn't driving the bus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Hey, let me ask yeah. you something. Did you ever know a Canadian band called Click? No. A, a club band. They were a Rush tribute band. And they were, like, I mean, there were Rush tribute bands, and then there were these guys. And, you know, right. so the, the drummer's a guy named Randy Black, who now is with one of the German metal bands. I think it's, like, Destruction or something. He was with Primal, mm -hmm. Primal Fear or Primal something for a long, long time. He was with... Um, I don't know, a bunch of these European metal bands and, and just a very, very technical, very good drummer. But the keyboard player is a, and singer is a very good friend of mine. And I've got a, I've got a tape, a, a board tape of them doing, uh, I think it was Red Barchetta or something. I swear, if I sent wow. you this song, you'd freak out. You'd, you'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> he's, he sings it better than Getty. I mean, he's very, very good. Uh, but anyways, he's doing cruise ships now. I just talked to him a few days ago. He's he's like a a dueling piano guy on cruise ships now. But wow. uh, just wondering if you had ever heard of them because they played they played in Ontario a lot. You were just touring all the time, and the last thing you'd probably do is go out and see a Rush tribute band on your days off, right? I don't I, I don't make it a point. No, I would think so. <laughs> to go see Rush tribute bands, but you know I do go out and look at a, other new bands. Yeah. That are. Uh, well, you got it. Like there's a. Yeah, there's a, there's a great band up here called Crownlands that I've been looking at. Another one called Prism Theorem. That's very good bands that are I'm coming write out. Those of, down. I'll check it out. So just before yeah. we get off Rush, there's a couple quick more questions. So, Go ahead. Um, 
all the washing machines and like the sausage making thing and all that stuff. What what's the story behind that stuff? Getty, Getty Lee. Yeah. Getty Lee's dream of having these things behind him. Like we all have meetings and when we're creating the shows and it's myself, Getty, his brother Alan, who's um, a film producer, and uh, Dale Heslip, who's a video director, we all sit down and we brainstorm together of ideas of what we think the show should be, because every every tour has got to be different than the last one. Right. And Getty comes up with these ideas, like one year he wanted chicken roasters on stage, and <laughs> one year he wanted, like, you know, the washing machine. I mean, the greatest thing I ever saw when we had the washers on there is when Jack Black came out and jumped up on them when we were playing Irvine Meadows and then took off his clothes and put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i've never heard classic. that one that's a oh good this one. was during the show this is when the show was that, when they were playing this all took is place. a good one takes his clothes oh, off. some great ones oh my god he did he started funny. he took his clothes off and put it in the dryer that like down to butt hilarious. naked you mean like all the way down he had his underwear on thank okay. god <laughs> yeah speaking <laughs> for most normal people i don't want to see jack black you know naked let's just not go there Let's not go there. Yeah. Well, I had no choice. I was doing lighting for this. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. So they you don't. Know, and, and 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 so all those props and and how to build them. And then you know, I would wind up putting video screens inside of them. And uh, one year I I did the uh, the sort of lightning um, bolts around Neil's drum kit. I had to find some lunatic guy that would put plasma inside of these uh, fixtures that we could put around the drum riser and gave them sort of aqua lightning bolts inside of a glass. It's like the old eye of the storm, um, yeah, static floats. electricity balls, right? right? Yeah. So there was like a lot of cool stuff that but we used to come When up there with. were washing machines, were they like, they were real washing machines? They were working washing machines just with lights and stuff put in them? Yeah. Everything that we use were real. Jeez. Except for the chicken roasters that we had built, right? Because some things you have to custom build. And the sausage machines, you have to have custom built. No yeah. one's going to have a sausage maker. Well, I love you that know? video that you guys had at the front end of the show with, uh, you know, that brought the sausage machines into the whole thing and stuff, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was hilarious. Yeah, that's cool. That's Getty's brother. Getty's brother and, and, and Dale, they... They do some great work. And, you know, before them, I was using another company. Like, it all started in, in the early days with a company called Nelvana Films. And uh, I had a friend, uh, Norm Stangle, who was uh, sort of like a managing director of that company. And we would pick animating artists to do pieces for each one of the songs. So the style would change because, you know, each song would have someone different doing the animation for oh, them. I they see. kept that. And we keep that same format. I mean, up until the last tour when there were many different artists that were uh, doing the animations. So they can give it a different feel. Some like sort of like a Monty Python feel. Some of it's a documentarian feel, like the you know, like documentary style. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. So the whole Rush thing, like, I mean, obviously I can't think of another designer who's worked with, an artist as long as you have with Rush. I, you know, you should obviously be very proud of that fact. I, I can't oh, think I of one. I mean, maybe there are others. Well, but I can. Who? Steve Cohen with Billy Joel. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, there you go. There's yeah. one. 
There it is. Yeah, there's one. But I mean, and, so aside from you two, now you're going to yeah. name another one, right? Who else? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so is Rush that way with a lot of their, quote, help or, or team? Um, like, I don't know who does front of house for uh, sound for Rush, but has he been with them a long time? I mean. Well, yeah, well, it was, it, it was for Rush have gone through some sound changes. At first, when it first started, it was Ian Grandy. Yeah. Then it went to John Erickson, who did Max Webster. And then from John Erickson, it went to Robert Scoville. Yeah. And from Ro- Robert Scoville, it went over to, uh, let me think, Robert Brad Maddox. And Brad Maddox did it until the end. So I would say Brad Maddox probably did the last 12 to 15 years of Rush. Okay. Yeah. But nobody Maybe lasted not quite as, as long as you. The only one that was longer than me was Liam Burt. And what's he? And Liam was was there before I was there, and he was Alex's guitar tech back then. Wow, that's incredible. And then when when I went to do Queensrÿche and I couldn't do Roll the Bones, I designed Roll the Bones, and I hired um, a lighting designer by the name of Sean Richardson to to run it. And um, because I was tour manager and tour accountant and you know, I did a lot of the travel, and um, I did a lot. So in order to replace me on that tour, they had to move Liam up to be the tour manager, tour accountant, and they had to bring in uh, Cheap Tricks tour accountant, John Whitehead, to teach Liam how to do tour accounting. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a big changeover when that happened. Right. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I couldn't do, I couldn't operate that tour. But um, did that, that I, cause issues? After, there were some issues there, but yeah. nothing that was. Uh, it didn't prevent the tour from happening. It was well, just th- kind of thank a different. God, thank God they're Canadian, because probably when you walked in and said, you know, Getty, Alex, Neil. Uh, I've got this Queensryche thing that I've got to do, and unfortunately it's created a conflict, and and I can't do your tour this year. They probably looked at you and said, sorry. No, Uh, it wasn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it was quite the opposite. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) no, they're they're good guys. You know, there was... uh, it, it was it was a strange situation because they had they had taken everyone off retainer yeah. over a long break period that happened before that tour, and you know we had to fend for ourselves. Like yeah. you know we had a, yeah, I still have the to bread, make money. Right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know I'm not I'm not in the band, but although so, people have told me I was. But it's speak, like, no. <laughs> speaking of which, so what the hell are you going to do now? I mean they're done, so. Oh, uh, I've got my company. I yeah, I know. I'm, I'm doing kidding. it. I'm kidding. You're a busy guy. I would like to do an. I would like to design another tour for someone, but yeah, um, no one is knocking on the door for that. So yeah, and it, you know it's as far as I'm concerned, you know, I'm I'm here. Yeah. Somebody who wants to have something that's, I don't think the uh, the design world. Although you know, I do respect other designers, and you know, I'm probably one of the few designers that will credit other designers. Yeah. You know, like like guys like Roy Bennett, and you know, guys like Mark Brickman, and Steve Cohen. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. I give, you know. Well, it's old um, school. I mean, you're old school and they're old school. Yeah. And, and that's just how you do things. You know, we're all we're all part of a family. We're all part of a, a weird tribe of. Uh, but I think one of the things that you're doing is that's really cool, or at least I, I get the feeling based on what you've been telling me is now you're going out and looking at some younger up and coming bands and you're going to do something very similar to what you did with Rush when you went out and it starts out as, you know, let me show you what it's like to tour. Let me teach you about touring and guide you a little bit because I'm sure for a young band coming out, there's a lot of holes they could step in, you know, that are filled with shit and pain and, and expense absolutely and lost absolutely. revenues and everything else. So if someone can guide them through that process, that's, uh, that's probably a very, very good thing. Yeah, I mean, like, there are these, you know, up-and-coming bands like um, Greta Van Fleet. Yeah. I mean, you know, I could do a number with those guys, but, you yeah. know, they, I think they have uh, they have a lighting designer now. Yeah. I think it, it could be, a, you know, Eric Wade. I'm not sure. But, um, was, you know... You know, they're a weird band because, like, I loved them the first time I heard them, obviously, you know, all the, the Led Zeppelin comparisons and everything else, but just... Their sound and their their old feel to them and everything else, like their songwriting, is very old feeling and very, you yeah. know, uh, very soulful and stuff. But like I, I don't know if you've seen it. It's on YouTube. There's a recent uh, show they did, I think, in Rio, um, I, and I think it's just within the past couple of months. But there's no like key lighting. There's no you can't see their faces. It's really a No, I know. It's very yeah. strange and I don't know if it was designed like that and I'm not critiquing anything. I'm no lighting designer, but you couldn't yeah. see them. <laughs> you know, and Well, it is South America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You never know down there. Yeah, maybe what, they were hiding know, from the audience cuz they didn't want to get killed listen, or I something. Had, I don't know. But, I had a dozen spots when we did the the Russian Rio. And uh out of the dozen spots, I was lucky to have 3 at any given time. Wow. It was Pretty amazing. Well, you know, another memorable thing, speaking of Russian Rio, was I'm trying to listen to YYZ, you know, on the DVD. And it's YYZ. It's YYZ. I'm sorry. Well, I've been in I've been in the U.S. a long time now, but um, so, so I'm trying to listen to that song on the DVD, and they're singing it. Like seventy thousand people in the crowd are singing da 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 da. Hey da 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 da. Hey da da. You know. Yeah, you know something. It's insane. They sing guitar solos. They are so passionate in South America, like. There were there were fans with tears in their eyes that the, that Rush actually came to play for them, and yeah. it was one of these things where I remember before the show, I was sitting with Getty way up outside the dressing room, we're in the stands where where it overlooks the stage and and the whole stadium of like eighty thousand people, and I remember Ged turning to me at one point in time and said, "Who would have thought?" <laughs> no <laughs> like shit. Well, yeah, except he goes, I think we're 20 years too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing I remember hearing or reading or something was that, I don't remember if it was South America or Mexico, but Closer to the Heart wasn't in the set, and you had to add mm -hmm. it because it was such a massive song there. Yeah. And it had to get added, like, last minute or whatever, so... Yeah, and they did. <laughs> yeah. Again, I mean, who knows? When, you, when you're going to do these things for the first time, you know, it's just such an incredible following. But it just... The, the funny part, I'll never forget them singing YYZ um, 
and <laughs> and singing word. drum solos and you know cheering all the way through a guitar solo and yeah. stuff. It was just like, what the hell, man? These people are crazy. But no, they. I mean, they were amazing there. Yeah, and they were grateful. You know, this it's very unusual to see a crowd that's that grateful. Yeah, and you know, it's funny when when Rush played their last show in. Uh, in Los Angeles at the Forum, which was one of my favorite places to play. Mm-hmm. In all my years of touring, I loved that Forum for some reason. Yeah. It's got a low ceiling, but I love it. And uh, people were sad, you know? It was a very, it was uh, bittersweet. Yeah. Well, it's I the end of say. something something monstrous, you know? It really is. And I know. But I, you know, I'll tell you what, and I don't know if it's because they're Canadian or just really cool guys or smart or whatever, but... Rush knows when it's over. You know what I mean? And there's bands out yeah. there touring today that certainly don't know. Like somebody should knock them on the head and say, buddy, <laughs> you know, nobody wants to hear you sing that anymore. You can't sing it. And, uh, you know, Rush doesn't want to put a half a product out or a watered down product or whatever. And that's really amazing. So, no, they, you know, they, they set a, they set a bar for themselves yeah. and it's a very, very high bar that they set. Yeah. And, I've watched them hit that bar so many times and when they realize they can't hit it anymore. And there's a song that they have written called losing it, which ironically they played on the last tour. And it's just about that. It's about when you get to a certain point when you just can't do it anymore and keep that same level. And rather than embarrass yourself, you have to bow out graciously. Well, Neil Peart bowed out graciously because he knew he couldn't do what he's been doing for the past 40 years uh, without, you know, making, you know, a fool of himself. Although well, talk if, about a guy though, that went through so many things. I mean, that oh poor gosh. guy, you know, Jesus. Yeah, no, he, he's, he has endured too many things. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's, it weighs heavy. I mean, I can't think of anyone that, uh, that went through what he went through and still, cut up on that stage and played the way he did and played uh, very well like a professional too, yeah you know? i mean incredible well, he is a professional that's yeah fun. well you know they're all pro- they're all professionals yeah yeah now they're you know, they're, uh, you know obviously i could sit here and talk for seven hours about rush and henry's probably you know i'm, I'm e- waiting for queen's right <laughs> now or something but um well yeah, i haven't I mean, heard from henry you know henry jump in feel free uh, yeah. i just well, my next question, Howard, it, it's kind of funny. I wanted to talk a little bit about Operation Mindcrime because, you know, me being the technology geek on this thing, um, you transitioned onto Cyberlights under that tour, right? There was 32 of them on that tour initially. Is that yes. right? Yeah. So right. what was the transition like? What was the interaction with High End? Obviously, Verilite still ruled the roost back then, right? And yet you went with a moving mirror fixture. So can you describe that? Can you describe the experience of high-end, what that was like to put cybers on the show? I have I have a very close relationship with high-end systems and Richard Bellevue, who are, I hold in high respect because the guy is brilliant. And I find him a genius. And he came up with a fixture that was fast-moving, which I like. This is why I chose it. It was fast-moving. It was versatile. It was bright. And it did the job. And I always have been a fan of using fixtures that do the job correctly. Um, You don't need a lot of lights to be effective. 
sometimes less is more. And when I design, I de- I've always designed, like, for example, like Rush and Queensryche, it was seven-truck tour, seven, eight trucks maybe max. So you're maximizing the economics of the tour, but you're delivering a show that looks way larger because I use airspace to create my designs. So that fixture, the high end, was we're always coming out with fixtures that were a little bit different than other companies at that time, right? Yep. So that that was my uh, light of choice, you know. And moving through their career, they had a lot of fixtures that I loved, you know, and um, the X-Spot and the X-Spot Extremes and things like that that they met. I, I used them in all my rush tours, you know. And then um, when when Very Light, you know, came out with their uh, BL three thousand, yeah, yeah, you know, the two Bs were one of my favorite fixtures to use. And then, you know, later on, the beam wash, what I used on the last Rush Tour, mm-hmm. was incredible. And now that I'm looking at their VL10s that are great. You know, I look at Roby Lights. That that company has gone from, from you know, zero to hero. You know, they, mm-hmm. they have some fixtures that are just so awesome as well as Elation. Elation is another company that's just like they come out with some brilliant fixtures. Yeah. So. You know, there's. Uh, I've been a fan of of a lot of different companies. You know, German light products are great. I was going to ask you what what's your favorite LED moving fixture. You know, I saw the Diablo the other day from Ariton, and that's getting a lot of buzz. Right, recent in, yeah. Recently no, I mean there, there there are a lot of them right now. Um, you know, LED fixtures to me, uh, I have to. I don't know. I'm a big discharge fan, but you know, with the LEDs, I find them a bit soft at the moment, you know, but I'm sure they'll change. I've had some, some tests going on in my shop where we do a lot of installations for hockey arenas and I need something that will replicate gobos perfectly. Right. Yeah. In that kind of environment, those are, those are great because it's an even field. looks Mm -hmm. good. Uh, for a rock concert environment, um, I don't know. Uh, well, for a touring fixture, too, you're doing maintenance every day. Like in a hockey arena, you want to hang this thing and, and hope that it works for a long time without having to do maintenance. And you give them a yeah. maintenance contract or whatever, and it costs you a lot less money to maintain it. But, you know, in a, in a touring situation where the fixtures are coming down and getting looked at every day, it's, it's oh, yeah. discharge makes a heck of a lot of sense unless you're struggling for, for power or whatever. But, um, yeah, but I agree with, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. LED, I don't think is a 100% replacement yet. I like some of the discharge fixtures that are out there still. Yeah. You know, having, you know and, but Howard, and if, I'm sure. yeah, if you're not using the, you know, high quality LED fixture, you're going to get, you know, when you do video, you're going to get, um, different lighting, uh, levels, you know, especially if you're using a cheaper led fixture, you know, because you use, some people like using more and then you see there's a batch matching thing where maybe all the leds aren't the same color, you know, that was my very next comment was, you know, I've, I've tried to photograph some of the aerials on led stuff. So I'll walk around some of the, you know, some of the trade shows, LDI or infocom and things like that. And I'll go like, Oh, this is a great light show. And I'll pick up my iPad and go to record it. And then when I play it back, I'm like, 
holy shit, this didn't capture, you know, where's the yeah. hole? Because it visually looked great to my eye. And you never have that with discharge fixtures. But have you experienced that also, where it just doesn't yeah. record straight? We do, yeah, we, you know, the, the only LED fixtures that seem to be consistent are the movie fixtures that they use for uh, key light. Right. Because they're, they're going to be, you know, basically full color correction spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know? That's why, um, you know, when as soon as you start using color with LEDs, they have to be high quality diodes, or you're going to have problems. Yeah. And uh, so, they, I mean, it's it's the other thing is since LEDs are so new, well, they're not that new, but they're new enough that when you look at an LED product, you don't know where when the degradation starts to happen, and then what what occurs because I think there's, they haven't been around long enough to see that. Well, what, what I know about it at this point, and you know, I have an led company as well is that, um, they don't shift in color temperature, which would technically lead you to understand that you're going to see less, uh, you know, mismatched products up in the, in the rig or whatever. They're going to be much more, um, you know, uh, along the same color temperature at least. But what they do is they fade over a long period of time. And that's assuming that they're using high-quality chips and highest binning and all of those things. But, um, yeah, it's it's uh, I get what you're saying. What about the laser? Yeah. When you're talking about merging old laser technology and some of the new technology, have you seen that clay packy thing that we keep talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh... I'm intrigued by it, but at the same time, I don't think you're going to be seeing it in North America anytime soon. Oh yeah, they're um, having trouble with the licensing. Yeah, yeah. sir. Yeah, because you know something. This has been like I have a, a variance to do audience scanning, and it goes through a series of uh, it goes through a pass system that's made by a company called Pangolin, yeah. and then we have to meter it to make sure it's legal. And we have to meter it in various locations, you know, furthest away, closest to the audience, and get the readings to make sure that we establish the proper safe readings to do the audience scanning. Yeah. And it's under a watt. So no matter how powerful the laser you use for audience scanning, the end, the end game is it's always going to be under a watt. Yeah. And, you know, how much can you see? Well, you That's can see what up, it though, is. That's hasn't it? Didn't it used to be even lower than that? Like I thought, milliwatts, it, it is, right? It, I it, thought it is was in milliwatts than, before. It is in milliwatts. It is lower than a watt because oh, milliwatts. Yeah. So it's like so. I mean, you know, these are. This is a serious uh, situation. Yeah. So we had to apply for a, a variance, and we had to get that variance. Have to be approved by it, and we have to have all the safety precautions in play. We have lists, and we have check thing, you know, checklists and 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 reading sheets that we have to keep track of on a daily basis, which we do. And uh, it's it's a different world out there, where you go to certain certain countries, you know, they don't have regulations. So what are they doing? They're putting harmful beams in people's faces. That's not good. I mean, you know, Europe was very very famous for that years ago. You know, they would take a full-blown laser and just put it in your audience. Like a blue oyster coat, when, way back in the 70s when they used to do it. Right. And then I, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't until um, Luxor Hotel put their ridiculous laser in the... Out of the point, out of the roof. Yeah. That's what prompted all of the rules. And like one of the rules and regulations, it was just, you know, 
you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you know, there and and the Who were in very uh, cooperative when they did their tours in the seventies. They had a company, I think, Laser Creations at the time, where they took you know lasers and they put them in the audience, and that also put up a big red flag. Right. So there was a, I think there was a five-year period when no one could use lasers until they sorted out what the rules and regulations. Now, Laser Media was one of the first and biggest laser companies in the world, and the guy named Ed Oswax was the, the owner of it. And I thought it was Harvey Botnet, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Harvey and Ed, the two of them. Okay, I got it, yeah. Yeah, but, it, you know, and those two guys, they had it all. They had the software, they had their imaging software, and uh, they were the only game that really was... There were a couple other ones. There was uh, the guys, uh, Ivan Dreyer, rest his soul, that uh, invented the Laserium shows. But it was all really based, a lot of them were based out of California. And there were other companies at the time as well, but uh, those were the big players. Was most of it drug-induced? All of it's drug-induced. Did the start of lasers <laughs> somehow correlate with the start of LSD? You know, somewhere in the late 60s. <laughs> no, I think I think LSD was there before. Yeah. I mean, lasers were always have been around since the 50s, but right. you know, in show business, I don't think so. Right. I think the drugs were there way before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> way, way, way before. Yeah. Drugs are always present. Unfortunately, it's like, or fortunately, depends who you are. Yeah, that's true. Huh. That's you know, true. there was a there, hey, there was a time in the 70s that everybody did quaaludes. It was like no one even knows what they are. Yeah, it's the ultimate. It's the ultimate relaxing sort of pill that you that you took, and yeah. they had a stamp on it. And the stamp would would be seven one four. Or yeah, right. And it always said Roar, the company that made it R O R E R seven one four. Yeah. And when you would tour around the United States, and everybody was before the show. The shows usually started at seven thirty or eight. So when you're in the arena and the audience is coming in, every time the clock went to 7.14, the audience went crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was that's, like one of those things back then. No one oh. knows what that means now, and no one can relate to it. What's what's your, uh, I mean, I know we just talked about gear a little bit and some of your favorite stuff and some of the companies and why you're choosing what you're choosing, but one of the questions I like to ask guys like you who who've seen it all and know it all when it comes to the gear is what's missing right now? Like what, what, uh, what are you waiting for somebody to invent right now? Hmm. Well, you know, I think that, uh, most of what I'm looking for has been invented. Um, sometimes, you know, the design capability that I have, I can, I still have endless design ideas using products that are in existence right now. It's how you use those products. Yeah. You know, I don't believe everyone are using the products to their full capacity. Um, I like to look outside the box when I'm looking at products and maybe taking an existing product, but grouping it together in a different kind of configuration and using it in a different kind of way. And to me, that creates a new fixture. Like when I was using the, the very light beam wash, I would combine them. I would use maybe four of them for one effect to make it look like one beam. 
and then I would be able to manipulate the lights to make the beam do different things that the light wouldn't do. But when people looked at it, they went, what the hell was that? Like, well, how are you getting that? So just because one giant just, searchlight beam, right? Sort of combined, yeah. right? And then knowing the inner workings of a light completely without just playing with it and, you know, putting it through, um, you know, the, uh, the effects generators and the consoles to, to know what their capabilities are. Um, I think it takes an old school mind sometimes to look at a new school yeah. light. Well, and to, you've always been a big uh, like advocate of new technology too. So you're typically one of the guys, one of the first guys that I saw using, um, you know, ACL moving lights in in uh, in touring. You were one of the first. You were one of the first guys using big high end showguns. You were one of the first guys, as Henry said, using cybers. So, you know, you're not like a lot of guys are afraid they want super tested technology before they'll take it out on the road. And um, I'm, I'm sure you're not reckless, but you're more into the cutting edge and getting it out and, and incorporating that into your designs. And that's pretty cool. I like it. Right. Sure. Well, on the front end of this, uh, you didn't hear it yet. You'll hear it when you go back and listen to the podcast. But we had Chris Conti on from uh, PRG. He's the chief innovative guy, uh, chief innovative officer, innovation officer at PRG, which is a rather new title in that company, I guess. But um, he came up with something or they came up with something called ground control. I don't know if you've seen that, but that seems to be another new wave which is getting the yeah. spot ops out of the rig and and down onto the ground but a funny thing was said during that conversation which is you know i asked him where are you putting these guys and he goes well it's funny you should ask that's a new problem that we've discovered and so in a lot of the venues they're struggling with where to put the spot operators now that they're on the ground and they're, I know. they're putting them in bathrooms and in the bombs and in the oh wherever they can fit them, right? They put them in a truck for one show. They were in a in a truck on the loading dock. Um, but, you know, there's now some talk with removing the latency of connecting them via VPN network so that you've got guys back in the shop running follow sh follow spots for your show. I know. It's, a, it, it's, it's amazing. I've actually watched people use it. You know, it's just... It still, you know, requires uh, spot ops in a different kind of way. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it still no, requires a skilled hand, for sure, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's, it seems like really, really cool technology. And I, it got me thinking, I wonder when, you know, your front of house guys are not going to be on a show anymore. So, you know, you're going to run lighting and run sound from, you know, an office or a shop or a... The bus. From the bus. The bus. From whatever. <laughs> You know, because because somebody's looking at it going, hey, when can we sell that big island of, of space that you're taking there with all these consoles and stuff? And, you know, obviously the technology is there to be able to do that. So. Absolutely. Who knows? Who knows? When uh, that's gonna happen. You know, th it, things will change. I mean, you know, I would just I would love to see um, light sources built into transparent video screens. And. That's something that I've right. always Sources been toying with. built into transparent. Yeah, so I'm trying to wrap my head around that yeah. one because they make transparent LED walls already. So you're going to have to explain that one. Well, I would like to have the frame of that housing light sources. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's done that yet? Because that to me seems almost like a kind of really cool no-brainer. 
You know, where it's a video screen once and then it's a light source next. Yeah, I'm waiting for Tobias Rylander to come up with something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah, there you go. That's I like that one. guy, actually. He, uh, I like his concept of lighting. It's so far, uh, you know, outside the box. That's why I think, to me, he's uh, another up-and-coming great designer. Well, I love any time somebody does something that, you know, is a little different. And I, I loved when, um, and God, oh, Jesus, I can't remember who designed it, but Coldplay, when they came out with just, like, those Element Labs uh, mm -hmm. Versatubes, the whole rig was oh, all yeah, Versatubes, yeah, yeah. you know? That was cool. You know, that was like, wow, nobody yeah. had ever done that. And I, I just love when something's completely unusual and very different. And we keep talking about Brickman doing the 16 follow spots for uh, Neil Young. Neil Young, yeah. On the, yeah. the um, what was that show, Henry? The big festival thing out in uh, California. Was it Coachella? Yeah, Coachella. I think it was, was Coachella. Coachella. And, uh, you know, like, I just like when people go outside the box a little bit and don't just, uh, you know, take a thousand moving lights and put everything on 10. Exactly. But well, that's the mistake that a lot of these people make. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have it. That's why I always, it. yeah, I say less is more. Well, I read another article that, uh, about you over the past couple of days and I must sound like a stalker now, but, um, and I can't remember what the fixture was, but it was it was a group of lights that you made people bring in every day for a, a one twenty second uh, yeah, but with, piece of yeah, a song. Par fifty sixes for countdown. Yeah, and they hated you yeah. for it. They hated it. Yeah, but they did it. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's, that's wild. Great. I also made my crew when I was doing focus and I was out at the console. I made them wear head, headsets. They hated that, too, because I wanted to talk to them as they were focusing because I was very precise on my focusing patterns, and I wanted to make sure there was no room for error Yeah. and nothing that looked sloppy in my rig because I was, you know, if you look at some of the shots that you see every now and then, you'll you'll see that the, uh, the, the symmetry is, is always perfect. Perfect, yeah. No, and that's yeah. always one thing that I've noticed about your, which is, you know, it probably started from the ACLs. When you were individually controlling all of those ACLs, when one's out, it looks weird, you know? And totally. So the focus has to be perfect. And that's probably where a lot of that came from, I would guess. Yeah, well, I, I had a picture that really bothers me of a bunch of Sharpies that I did in multicolors and did a nice grid out of it. And one of them was broke and it kept swinging up and one of the photographers took a shot when it was up oh, here. No. So I put on so I posted and put where's Waldo? Oh no. Well that's like taking a picture of a uh you know a singer or a movie star with a booger hanging out of his nose, you know. Come oh on. yeah. Like that's terrible. Do they still have fixture lockout on the consoles? You you locked that one out, right? Which one? So that one Sharpie that was wild, they still have fixture lock. Oh, yeah. we right? Yeah, well, yeah. we took it out. We, you have to. It's just yeah. he happened to get that picture right at the wrong yeah, moment. Yeah, but the guy, you know, like, you know, it was in a move. When the move happened and the thing wonked itself out, it was like, yeah, we doused it, and that was it after that happened. But the picture was taken while it was up yeah. in the air. It just had gone into the air when he clicked it. Yeah. So Howard, we, uh, we tend to... Um, interview a lot of guys who've been doing this a while and and one of the patterns that I keep seeing and and we talk about is giving back 
you know, just whether it's via, uh, you know, some people actually teach at colleges, some people mentor young people in the industry. Um, are you doing anything? And, and I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit because we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but are you doing anything at all to bring younger people into the business, whether it's into your own company or just into the industry in general? Well, with my own company, we have a lot of young guys that come in and, and uh, they learn lasers. I actually um, got a great guy that, of a, that used to work in a bicycle shop, and wow. his, his, his hobby was um, he liked to video, do a lot of video uh, of bands that were playing. I managed a band at one point in time, and... Um, this guy actually shot video and recorded the band and uh, got the recording off the board and got the video. Nothing was synced together. And he put together a video. He edited it with the audio, and it looked amazing. And he handed it to me, and I went, this is outrageous. I said, how did you do this? And he goes, well, you know, I have... I use, you know, Pro Tools. I know how to work this. I know how to work that. And I'm thinking, and you can work a laser system. And then I, I said to him, I said, would you be interested in learning about lasers? And he said, yeah, I'd love to do that. I said, I'll give you a job. Go ahead. Quit <laughs> quit the bicycle store. So that's wild. now he's like one of my uh, top guys. That that's is wild. wild. Well, know? and that's what you have to do now. Like, uh, you know, we were we were talking with, uh, with Greg from Clearwing last week. And, you know, they're doing these community outreach things where they're going out into the community and doing um, job fairs and different things where you're showing technology and teaching. You know, it's almost like military recruiting, bringing people into this industry because we can't just continue to, you know, just go through the same people over and over again. And they work for this company one day, that company the next, that company the next. You have to bring new people in. And you know, and shape them and mold them into, you know, sort of the older ways of doing things and pull the millennial out of them, <laughs> you know? Well, well, definitely, you know, it's like, uh, I did a, um, sort of like, a, a web, uh, broadcast to Carnegie Mellon university to their theatrical department. And, um, I had all the students and, uh, I spoke to them for about, an hour and a half to two hours on uh, field questions and gave them design techniques. And uh, I've done this on, on different occasions. Yeah. I always will educate someone who's young, who wants to come in and learn. I, um, I do take the time to give back. I've always given back, even when I was on tour with Rush. Yeah. As you know, I yeah. would let, the, if anybody that was young had exuberance, no one gave me the chance to do what I do. Yeah. It wasn't handed to me. I had to work to get to work, to be where I am today. Yeah. And um, well, I imagine will help anyone. You know, f- fifty years later, or whatever it is, forty years later, hundred, whatever it is. But imagine, <laughs> imagine, had you not had the balls to go in and keep bugging that secretary and keep bugging that guy, and you know, and and uh, I mean, I guess stealing the pony didn't really have any. Uh, impact yeah any impact on your career positive or negative but but you know imagine if you didn't have the balls to do that back then what would your life have been and you know maybe it would have been better who knows but 
I think you've had a, a pretty unbelievable career and, and, you know, certainly a lot of success uh, as well. So, you know, I am, I am very grateful for everything that I've been exposed to, yeah. um, you know, just in travel education, Worldwide, you yeah. know, I've been to, I've been everywhere yeah. and, you know, I am, I probably lived five lifetimes in one. Yeah. So I have to say that, uh, I, I'm very appreciative yeah. and I don't take anything for granted yeah. and, uh, I'm grateful. And, um, every morning I wake up, I, I thank the universe for what it has given me. Yeah. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I do attitude. a lot of meditating. Yeah. So do I, you know? And uh, there's some very interesting uh, things that are said, and there are only two types of people in the world, and that's miserable and joyful. And I basically choose to hang around the joyful people, not the miserable people. Yeah, amen to that. Well, and there's a lot of both. There's a lot of both, and and in our industry, there seems to be more miserable than joyful for some reason. But (laughs) oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the old Hunter S. Thompson about the, uh, the long plastic hallway where pimps and thieves run wild and good men die like dogs. Yeah. And then there's the bad side. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's so what he true. described the entertainment business as. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> well, Howard, before we let you go, any, uh, any stories, anyone you want to throw under the bus, any... Funny Anybody I want to throw under the bus? <laughs> yeah, I mean anything. <laughs> you know, can we have long-standing a, can bandanas? We have a nugget here, like so and so's an asshole, or this guy stole my sharpie and I'll never forgive him, or nothing. Well, I mean, all of that's happened, but I don't. I'm not that kind of person. I mean, there's no vendettas for me. Good you know, for you. and uh, there's nobody I would throw under the bus no. who hasn't tossed themselves under. Yeah. So you know, it's like um, once again, I got to be positive. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, I'm trying to think of a of, of a good closing story. Well, I mean, is, certainly one of those other funny ones, and I can't even remember much of it. But from that movie, the uh, from the documentary thing, who was it? Even was it Lemmy or who was making fun of them for the uh, honeybees and or honeydew and whatever? That was Pete Way from UFO. Oh, right. That's who it was. Every time he would see them, he would say, I will be dining on Honeydew. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, but I think one of the best ones, it's more of a Queensryche story, was um, I was coming back from, uh, we were in Sweden, and we did a big bus ride. And we, went, we had to go to France, to, somewhere outside of Paris. And um, we were drinking this Acrovit all the way, oh getting out of God, control. Oh, my God, stuff's death. I know it's in, it's insane, and uh, you know one thing that you cannot do on a bus. The only well, the only thing you can do on a bus is urinate. You can't, you know, yeah, take a dump on a bus. <laughs> it's just not it's not you know done. Yeah. So we did this whole drive, and we got, we pulled in in the morning, and had to go to the bathroom really badly, and uh, I was all hungover, and we pulled up in front of the venue, and uh, the venue was locked up like Fort Knox. There was, it was about six in the morning, nothing was open and I needed to use a washroom in a bad way. And we were sort of in a city area. And then I looked across the street and I saw this park and I saw the international (laughs) sign. 
for washroom. So I follow it and I'm walking through this park and I get to the washroom and I'm like, yes, here it is. Oh, how excellent. And when I get there, there's a coin thing on the door. And I had just come from Sweden at the time. It was before the Euro, right? So I had kroners in my pocket and wanted francs. Yeah. So I was trying to force the kroners in to see if it would work. And no, it wouldn't work. And you know the feeling when you have to go to the washroom oh, yeah, really yeah. bad. Right? Yeah. So I sat on a bench across from this washroom, hoping that eventually somebody will go. And in my mind, I was thinking, how am I going to get in there? And then I thought, well, if somebody else comes in, I'll wait till they come out. I'll hold the door open and I'll just go in behind them so I don't, because I don't have the money to pay for it. So eventually, this lady comes walking through and she goes in to use it. And I felt really weird. I feel like a pervert. I'm like, oh, now I got to go around the side and listen for the the sound, you know, of her finishing. Finishing. <laughs> and then, and, and, and I do. I, went, I wait till she finishes. I hear the toilet flush and it's all good. And then the door opens. She walks out and I gently grab the door. And I'm like, okay. And I just wait a few seconds till she walks. But I guess she didn't hear the door close. So when I went in, she saw me. She turned around. And I, I went in and I closed the door. And I'm like, yes, I'm in. And I locked the door. And within seconds of me sitting down on the toilet, I hear this sound like coming from the ceiling. And I look up. And all this burning blue liquid comes down out of the ceiling because it's a self-cleaning toilet. Oh, and no. And it cleans itself. And I'm in the middle of the, of the cleaning cycle. <laughs> so now I have been, looks like I'm one of the blue men now. Oh, my Because I'm all covered in this blue liquid. And then I'm like so pissed off that I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like now I don't even feel like I have to go to the washroom anymore. <laughs> and, and then another sound happens. And it's a drying thing where hot air is blowing out of the ceiling now, and it's drying the blue liquid that's in there. I guess that's how it self-cleans itself. Looked like after and coming I out felt of like an thing. idiot. I felt like an idiot. I was in there. And now I'm thinking, okay, not only do I have to walk out in public, right, after now feeling like I don't even have to go to the bathroom anymore, right. I have to go back to the bus and face the crew, all like looking oh like a blue God. man. It was horrible. That is anyway. so funny. Are there pictures of it? There's <laughs> got to be pictures one. of yeah, it somebody somewhere, right? Have a no, there prehistoric there camera no, phone. There were no cameras back then. I'm, I'm sort of happy aren't, about that. Yeah, aren't but, we uh, all fortunate of that, right? Can you imagine if yeah. they had camera phones when we were younger? Uh, no, I know. Well, I have th- I have thousands of stories like that. But anyway, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to take any more of your time. If you have no, any other no. questions at all. No, no, we yeah, gotta we gotta let you go. We've been we've been on with you almost two hours here. So Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Okay, guys. Thank you so much, Howard. We Thanks appreciate so it much, very Howard. much. We I know no, you've welcome. been listening to the podcast, so we appreciate your support too, and we're gonna keep it going and have a lot of fun with this thing. So Well that's awesome, but let me know if you're coming through South Florida at all and exactly. and uh I'll come out and say hello. Same way Definitely. in Orlando. You got it. Okay. All right, Howard. Thanks, Henry, Howard. take it easy. Marcel, thank you. All right, buddy. All right. Once again, we would like to thank PRG, our sponsor for today's episode. We would like to thank Chris Conti from PRG and, of course, our main guest, Howard Ungerleiter. 
we will talk to you again next week on episode 24. Oh, baby.